This week, I want to start out thanking one of our sponsors that is back because of you guys and your support, and that is the wonderful company, Book of the Month, that is really just a delight in my mailbox right now. I always have had trouble when it comes to reading books because I... I think there's a paralysis of choice. There's a little burden when, with like a TV show. You, you click it, you see if you like it, whatever. With books, I, I don't buy one without a recommendation. It, there's too many options. And with Book of the Month, it's a subscription service that is designed for millennial women to help them find the best new reads each month. So on the first of the month, they announce five new and early release books. And you can get up to three books each month, but their editorial team curates this book selection. It's a great way to branch out of new genres or styles. As an author myself, I love that they support up-and-coming authors, debut writers. They highlight new and diverse backgrounds. And best of all, you get the books before they're released in the marketplace. I read Beach Read several weeks. I don't even know if it's come out yet. And um, this time around, for the May books, I got The Boyfriend Project, which... If you know my history of verbally accosting people on Venmo that wronged my sister, you'll know that when I read the description of The Boyfriend Project, which is being cheated on, not so fun. Befriending the other women, very fun. This modern romance feels downright empowering. You know, it's no surprise that I uh, added to cart pretty quickly. There's also a book called The Good Marriage, Happy and You Know It, The Knockout Queen, The Book of Longings. All of these I've heard of. All of these are highly coveted new releases. They are beautiful hardcover copies and... It's just, I don't know, it's super relevant to, the, to my lifestyle right now and it's an exciting thing to look forward to. And I love that you guys who have subscribed from our last ad are already loving it. So if you want to get your first month's book for $9.99, use code BETHEREIN5 at checkout. Just how the show is spelled F-I-V-E, not the number. Usually a month subscription is $14.99, but with code BETHEREIN5, it will be $9.99 for your first month. So again, bookofthemonth.com, use code BETHEREIN5, your first month's book, $9.99. And thanks to Book of the Month so, so much for supporting this podcast again. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in Five podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your multi-hyphenate host, entrepreneur, author, obvious musician. This is Influence in the Time of COVID-19, Part 3. You know I love a trilogy. I can't help myself, much like Mormon mommy bloggers. I, I go into something thinking I can simply, concisely, lol, explain it. And I, I come out realizing it's it's much more complex, you know, M- much like much like my hair following a, a trip in seventh grade to a fantastic Sam's following an AOL instant messenger heartbreak. I leave realizing there's many erratic, imperfect layers. <laughs> I, you know, an onion would have been a better metaphor there. Um, but I think about, I don't know, did any of you guys sit at like a haircut of your fantastic Sam's and like, really seem to think that you'd come back the next school year hot if only you got face framing layers like it would overhaul your entire persona i certainly did but it's a crime to give layers to people without styling tools you know like anybody who's air drying does not need to be layering but but anyway i, I digress yes I, I the further i get into it the more i realize there's so much more here that i want to talk to and that i want to divide it up into different ways and thank you for your patience i adjusted a lot of this episode because i really enjoyed the anonymous survey structure for the second episode in terms of people talking about other influencer behavior. And then when I was about to finish this episode, I just said really quick to Facebook and Instagram, like I sent out an anonymous survey being like, what else didn't I cover? What questions do you have for me? And it was actually totally different than the original episode I had planned. And I try to make this as demand driven as I can, because I don't have an agenda here. I want to talk about what you're interested in. 
And um, yeah, so I kind of readjusted a lot of this episode so it would reflect what you were most curious about. I mean, top of that list, I'm assuming, is the gorgeous melody you just heard, which, yes, was Candy Shop. I asked on Instagram, um, like, what would be, you know, uh, well, I said, what would be a fire song on the recorder, which didn't sound right then and it doesn't sound right now. (laughs) Uh, But like 40% of you said Candy Shop, which I thought was so specific, but you're right. It worked. It was two notes. And now I feel ridiculous for uh, spending so long trying to play Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah for Patreon. (laughs) While gorgeous, this ear-bleeding hollow plastic tube is probably not my meal ticket. Uh, And it's crazy that this thing sounds so god-awful, yet they exclusively give it to fourth graders. And beyond that, like music teachers are walking into it because when you look up um, sheet music for recorders, they're called like fingering charts. And I was triggered enough hearing that verb on Summer House. Like I just don't need it in my life as I try to sharpen my woodwind saw. But anyway, uh, thank you guys for being here. This episode, I don't really, I'm not going to overstructure it. I'm not going to overthink it. I just want to, yeah, be honest about my thoughts and experience. I could wax poetic about influencer theory all day. Um, you know, I have this, like, I always fear if I, if I overly defend something, it's off-putting, or if I say too much, it's too inside baseball, and I'm just going to try to talk, give me the benefit of the data feed, so like, and really what I want to do is just talk about a topic that I think is really interesting, and the many complicated layers involved, and I don't even know if I have the best structure, but first I do want to talk about what I think is an interesting and broader issue uh, that I've noticed, especially in recent weeks, with like, you know, Emily Giff- Giffen and Meghan Markle, which I talked about last week in terms of just like hating women for no reason and never letting them win and, you know, painting them as these diabolical, shrill, controlling characters that they're just not. Or um, Alison Roman and Chrissy Teigen and Marie Kondo. And aside from allegedly there being some racist undertones I was reading about in Vice, the New York Times chef, I think I talked about this last week. I just thought that, that was such an interesting thing, too. She's a, you know, very well-respected chef that completely dismissed and belittled people like Chrissy Teigen or Marie Kondo for selling out and capitalizing on their, you know, trade that she kind of invalidated their right to be in by, you know, doing merch and bigger product lines and having content farms. And she just kind of went for the joke, but the joke didn't land because it belittled two people's very successful careers that they worked hard at and they have every right to be in, even if they didn't take a traditional route like you did. And that's that type of mentality that people put toward TikTok, that, you know, people put toward Gen Z, that people put on millennials all the time, that it's just like, just because it's new and it's different and you don't understand it doesn't mean you have to shit on it. And I think that's how people talk about influencers, which I'm always trying to kind of say, like, I know this is funny and there's a ton of humor here, but also I think that it's kind of hurting us overall by us making fun of it more than we support it. And that's I'm always trying to make a case like in my Facebook group and stuff, which I know is annoying because the snarky posts are like more fun. But I do believe that these things affect people's mental health. And I do think that there's a difference between commenting on somebody's behavior as they the way they approach their job versus their character. I think there is a difference, as I've always said, between being snarky and mean spirited. And I think there's a difference in terms of commenting on how somebody executes against their job of being an influencer versus what's just like below the Gucci belt, so to speak, like just somebody's teeth and body and looks and husband and kids and, you know, insulting that stuff. While I get that they they bring us into their life and it is kind of a gray area and it's weird when your life and your work bleed so closely together and they essentially capitalize off their life. I still think there's an element of humanity that is lost and we need to not. I don't know. It's so weird. I just feel like the way people talk about influencers is so fucking mean, if I'm being honest. And oftentimes the way influencers talk about their followers when they grow bitter and distant is so entitled. I I think it can go both ways. But I I do want to encourage people to like think about if we can reframe it as a job and if we can all be a little bit more supportive of the industry that's not going anywhere. 
And in thinking of it as a job, try to stick to feedback that stays within the realm of, you know, how are they actually doing at this job? But calling somebody's husband unattractive is like rude. And I don't really get the point. I mean, forget Emily Post. I subscribe to the Dorinda Medley Code of Etiquette. And uh, as she says, you know, like, be a lady. Talk about somebody behind their back, but don't write it down. Say it, forget it, write it, regret it. I don't know. I guess for me, it's just I'm surprised in the first place how much genuinely mean, detailed stuff is written about people. And it gets back to them super easily. And maybe that's what people want. But like, I don't know. I, I it's just, whatever. I get that it's fun. I guess what I'm also saying is I'd be remiss to not use this platform in terms of sharing that I really think that it's important sometimes to reframe and think of this as a broader issue and think about the way people talk about women and our contributions to it, myself included. And I think that like I benefit so much from these digital jobs. My career completely evolved because of them. There's so much power in networking and social media that like I can't that I'll kind of talk about later that is so unparalleled relative to like what the normal functioning world can get you that's so reliant on you know people's money and privilege and connections and nepotism and all these existing structural systemic issues that are hard to surpass in real life you can surpass on the internet i did do you think anybody wanted to listen to like a market researcher a person with like data analytics uh you know just get on instagram and like talk about their life like no it gives normal people an opportunity to kind of like reposition themselves to live out the version of themselves they'd love to but don't really have a outlet for in their immediate life and i think there's so many ways it's so cool and we should think about what people have been able to accomplish you know one of those things where i don't know when something becomes like a cliche thing to joke about and make fun of and not take seriously it's really hard to rid of that stigma but i'm just trying to like for as much as I joke about people, I also want to support them. I also want to acknowledge that while there's so much humor here and I always want to go for the joke, <laughs> I also think it's the more we can like all reframe these digital jobs and take them more seriously ourselves and therefore the rest of the world and the mainstream media and everyone else will take them more seriously. I think like the those of us that like it the most make fun of it the most, which we should be the ones that are allowed to do that. But I do think there's an element of championing digital careers and innovative women and influencers and, you know, making a case for them because they're not going anywhere and they provide us a lot of entertainment and for every joke i tell i also i don't know just want to make sure people like if they're if this is actually adding value to your life if you enjoy these people in your day-to-day -day, like it's also important to support them too and like I've, i feel like i sound like i'm on a high horse I'm, I'm trying to use this platform responsibly and i really from the bottom of my heart do want to be kind and not contribute to anything hateful or rude and like you know to be fair i am petty draper half of the time i am like holy crap that is a large painting of jesus like is this really necessary i text it to a few friends it's not great but i don't know i feel like yeah you can like nitpick at home decor but there's a way to talk about it that's like funny and lighthearted. if you've won too many geometric terrariums it doesn't mean you're a dumb bitch like when people say, you know what i mean it's like can we stick to language that's about the thing and not like digging into people's character or whatever I, I think, you know, lighthearted decor things are they're so fun to it's fun to like lurk and look at people's houses and to talk about them. And, you know, I feel like some of that stuff's on the table, much like the onslaught of high volumes of tapered multicolored candles that everybody seems to be putting on their counters these days that, while lovely, also resemble a small constant in-home vigil. But that's beside the point. I don't mean these individual like small things aren't fair to talk about, but I mean, like, in general, just our attitude toward women in the digital space. It's kind of like with TikTok. I feel like this is becoming a theme of my podcast. It's like there's so many things out there, especially in the digital space, that are are are, are new and strange and cringy and, you know, make us fear a threat of, of shallow living. And, and the unfamiliar does feel threatening. And we question the sustainability of some of these 
mediums that just don't seem to align with like traditional family values or, you know, uh, virtues of privacy or whatever it is. I feel like for every social media platform and every aspect of, of sharing one's own life in a way that's a little bit uh, embarrassing, it can take people a long time to adapt. I guess I'm just surprised after like 10, almost like 15. Well, I feel like a lot of blogs like didn't love Taza and like Nat the Fat Rat and like Cup of Joe. And I feel like there's a lot of them that started like even closer to 2005 or something. Um, at this point, I, I'm kind of surprised that people make so much fun of influencers by and large and don't take the job seriously. And it's such a stigmatized role. Uh, yet I'll explain this later. My argument is that there are different types of influencers. I call these paid, owned, and earned. <laughs> and why the more recent onslaught is what's maybe making people not take the industry as a whole. And, and I think now we have best practices and stuff and like token bloggery things that when people kind of do the cliches, it, it to become a thing that a person like, some people evolved into these blogger influencers. Some people are just like trying to take the the best tactics and turn themselves into a blogger influencer, which isn't really how it works. And I think that's kind of the cringier, tough behavior that a lot of people misjudge the industry based on is like a newer uh, onslaught of influencer. But I'll get to that later again. But yeah, like everybody that's so mean about TikTok is like on it now because I knew it's the sunniest corner of the Internet in quarantine. It's super weird, but it's different and it's it's entertaining and it's not as heavy. And I like, is there not something so incredible about I forget if I talk about this later because I <laughs> I've recorded this in two pieces. One was me updating the episode based on what you guys wanted to talk about because I had to I changed the whole thing based on that survey I sent out last week. Um, but anyway, I yeah, I just think there's something so incredibly cool that you can be a, a a shy, insecure, you know, freshly braces off 15 year old and just like dance and do something pretty innocent, not even trying for fame. But people take to you and you become the most famous person in the world. There's a lot of downsides to that. I don't know if I'd want that for myself or my kid, but I'm obsessed with that concept of social media as, you know, in creating a democracy for fame, for socialites, for if you have a talent, if people take to you for some reason, if you have some sort of X factor and you have access to a phone, regardless of who you are, where you're from, where you live, what you do, if you can put yourself on the internet and in front of remote eyeballs without having to have any of the systemic, you know, structure in place for people to succeed in prior generations. You can make something of yourself. And that is pretty damn cool. And that that's the stuff I try, like to try to think about when I'm like, oh, my God, why are so many people cringily dancing to the song? It's like, at least people are being joyful and having fun and not sharing like QAnon theories like they are on Instagram. Beyond that, I mean, I'll, I'm going to get into like influencer, like business model. I'll answer, you know, as many of the personal questions you ask me as I can. Um, I just kind of wanted this to be like a long conversation of like influencer theory and just my thoughts about how we approach them, how people have approached me um what i think of the business model and the brand deals and monetization i'll explain a little bit more about podcasting to you i'll we'll, we'll just we'll have a good time we'll chat through this and what was it talking about <laughs> um oh yeah i was kind of thinking to myself okay like let's break this down you know why why do people seem to like hate influencers you know like i just feel like above any other job it's just such a a ridiculed position i think that that it shouldn't be this way. And I don't want to feel this way. And I almost want to analyze like the root cause of why I do, but establish a defense for why this is actually like an incredible case for women's interests and why it's so easy to ridicule, but, but maybe shouldn't be. We should be allowed to criticize them. But I think that a lot of things in the blogging and influence sphere, we kind of need to have more solidarity surrounding or else people are just going to make fun of us all into eternity. And not me, I, I don't mean me as like a podcaster or, but, or a public figure, but 
um, like our interests overall. It's kind of my same argument with pop culture and arguing for range. Like, I think there's so much depth even in like uh, the kind of blogosphere and the influencer world in terms of the way we're entrenched in these people's lives and care about them and like experience so many ups and downs and milestones and wins. And, you know, we, we, do we talk shit? Yeah, but I think we have so much more affinity than we maybe even express. And I just always want to kind of argue for the adaptation of things that are unfamiliar to you in the digital space, even if they seem cringy and at odds with everything you believe in, if they're growing in popularity and not slowing down, it behooves you to get on board. And for me to get on board, I try to see the depth and not in what it actually is, but what it means to people and why they're using it. And for me, the the prime era of the OG blogger of Pinterest of the early 2010s of the onset of aspirational living is a special, special time that is the very pure origin of influence that I think it's important we revisit sometimes in order to get back to our roots and understand why we're here and what it's all about. And it's not it was never about the swipe ups. This was before stories even existed. It comes from a place of sharing, of outfit assembling, of leveraging what you have, of elevated living, of DIY projects. I, 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 I can't, I don't even know where to begin. When I think about, you know, the early 2010s, like I'm so obsessed with P- the Pinterest era. I, I, I love the bar carts. I love the vignettes. I love the diptyque candles and the peonies and the acrylic furniture. I love the artfully, you know, most expensive dress you own thrown over a chair in a closet shoot. Like, it's just always there. But really, you want us to know it's your most expensive item. I love, you know, DIY uh, wood palette projects. I love a a first birthday party or a gender reveal that is so excessive and embarrassing. You almost have to do it before your kid's old enough to say no, that's embarrassing. So people do it while the baby's in the womb or under one year old. I think that so many high fashion couture shoots fall flat. What do I want? I want a flat lay. I want a simple instruction of a shirt to pair with a pant to pair with a potentially leg shortening boot or, you know, a, a statement necklace, perhaps an animal print scarf. I love uh, an innovative blog post that says things like how to pair high and low price points or, you know, denim day to night. My God, the innovation. I I live for, I don't know, a house plant that seems so involved and expensive. I think to myself, should I just have a kid instead? I, I love a condescending acai breakfast bowl that is so much fruit cut up and displayed on top of it that by the time I finish chopping, it would in fact be lunch. I I love being told something's like an investment piece, despite knowing by economic definition, the second you buy it, it quite literally does depreciate. But that's okay. Take my money. It's important to have a diverse portfolio of stocks, bonds, mutual funds and on trend handbags. You know, Um, I know I personally am thanking my lucky stars for making a great call with the longevity of that Dooney and Burke piece I dumped my entire paycheck into in 2005. It stood the test of time. That was a good use of my investment. I I just think back to the day of like 2011, 2012. I remember thinking like cupcakes and cashmere deserved a damn Pulitzer because they taught me about pops of color. And I didn't know my gold jewelry wasn't delicate enough until I until I read it. And I'm being dead serious. I live for delicate gold jewelry. I didn't know that that's what I was looking for until then. I, uh, I love when a blogger, you know, has some sort of gorgeous coat or, or pullover or something that everybody's asking about and then they link to it and they tell me you know it's out of stock or it's you know gucci from spring 2016 so it's not available anymore and then they they mean well to, to pander to the uh, 
they want to stratify price points and tell us to swipe up for something similar and well and more affordable. You know, they care about us as an audience. But my particular favorite is when you know their Gucci piece is no longer available, but they assume the suitable alternative for a commoner like myself is to swipe up for an old navy performance fleece. And you know, do I feel like that's a little patronizing sometimes? Yeah, but I'm not mad. I live for the push pull. It's just like any of our best friendships. You know, we can't expect to be close and not be met with complications. I don't know. I'm just trying to articulate how much I genuinely love all this stuff, and that I am an OG follower of OG bloggers and Pinterest Nation and. You know, up until 2010, our inspo was, you know, we were looking at paparazzi photos of like Tara Reid slop fests or, you know, Lindsay Lohan, Paris Hilton, like there was like socialites. But then social media made socialites a democracy. It made anybody be able to be famous so long as they could curate a version of their life that we thought was a spectacle, which could be done in a studio apartment in New York or in a Utah compound. It, It doesn't discriminate because there's enough people out there that have all different lives that wouldn't follow people whose lives resemble theirs. And it doesn't need to be all one way. And I think the blogging industry and the, the, the kind of Pinterest economy brought about these beautiful people with beautiful lives. And they told us they were just like us and we believed them. So instead of following a, an untouchable, unrelatable celebrity for our inspiration for content, for product recommendations, we all of a sudden had an a vehicle, a means to access real people's curation of items that we might be able to actually afford or come by. And I love the spirit in which it was started. It was more about sharing and it wasn't about showing off. It was, let me show you how I style all these pieces of my wardrobe. The the, the Pulitzer-worthy content I talked about earlier, the high and low fashion, the denim day to night, the pop of color, the, 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 the fall phenomenon of it all. The, you know, oh, here's 10 looks that well, you can wear apple picking, but then also we'll make you right for the picking at the club. You know, it's like, wow, a fur vest. You're right. It does translate well from orchard to dance floor. And I just these people give me life. They've I've bought so much shit from them over the years. I think that it's just such an interesting thing when you think about how we all of a sudden had these people that were regular, like renovating their entire home and being like, you know, you too can do light electrical work. And I don't know, it's just like, you know, I grew up in a world of, I don't know, the focal point for so many women just being their relationships. And yeah, it's like what they were on the carpet and their friend drama, too. But like, I think a lot of the um, ways like the popular women we looked up to were covered were for the, you know, typical superficial tropes that celebrity gossips associated with that's like fun to talk behind people's backs, but isn't necessarily adding valued anybody's life beyond people wanting to talk about people but and you can oversimplify the onset of influencers as celebrities makeshift socialites whatever and i guess i'm always talking i'm not really talking about like youtubers and stuff i kind of talk from an original early 2010s blogging standpoint because i don't know why uh but i know a lot of you guys are kind of have been into these people for a long time but um i just i don't know i i think about you know that being the way celebrity women contribute to society in terms of we can't know anything about their personal life so all information is like handled with baseless gossip versus a group of women getting famous defining their own narrative taking pride in the way they decorated their homes the items they bought the clothes they wore the what they cooked for their families the the way they took photos and you know, being validating that it's okay to care about aesthetics, that it's artistic to want to live a beautiful life, that 
There's resources and ways to do things cheaply or to use outfits multiple ways or to meal plan so your food lasts a whole week. And it became about resourcefulness and innovation and doing things yourself. And I just think that what once was a group of women that were just existing, that we were supposed to be fascinated by, came a, a wave of women that got famous because they were providing information that was legitimately helpful for people and that allowed women to harvest their interests in a way that didn't uh, feel like a productive use of time or wasn't as mainstream or popular as when we got this Pinterest era and all of a sudden everything we ever wanted to do, every ambition we ever had, every aspiration we wanted to aspire to is at our fingertips. And even if we didn't perfect it, we could at least try it. And even if we didn't you know, have the capability to overhaul our entire lives to exhibit such aspirational content, at least for a moment, we felt like a classy broad pouring a balsamic reduction on a pair of goat cheese honey cracked pepper salad that we, you know, saw on a cup of joe. And I know I may be uh, weaving my sarcastic thoughts in between my earnest musings, but I honestly like I'm so fond of the industry and that period of my life. Not only was the first time I had a salary and like spending power, but also it was kind of when I was building my own home and when I was becoming an adult and um, figuring out like who I wanted to be and the things I cared about and like the kind of, you know, s establishing my own traditions for like, if I'm a hostess, what do I want? And what do I want my safe space in my bedroom to look like? If I am investing in different pieces, what should they be? And who should I go to for that input? And you know, I'm the youngest child. I largely didn't, I don't possess a lot of the skills I probably should. And I, I like learned a lot from watching these people. And um, I don't know, I, I just think that there's incredible, I admire and I think there's something incredibly important about um, a group of women being a new type of public figure and embracing the things that women are so often dismissed or made fun of for caring about as if they're unimportant when really, sure, at a high level, we define life by its, you know, overarching themes and, and chapters. But the art of living, the, the art of our day to day, the, these people are in the business of of details, of beautiful details, of the things we surround ourselves with to elevate our experience while we string together the often mundane and difficult day, day to day of our existence. I, I, I don't know. I think about my mom, who above all else taught me the power of effort. And I think that's a funny through line of the thing we make fun of influencers for, like my acai bowl commentary. It's effort. But deep down, I know that this extra editorial attention paid to clothes and decor and shoes and renovations and birthday parties and organization schemes and meal planning, it's, it's not what's tapping society dry of substance. For many of us, it's our, it's our wellspring. I, I, my mom always, you know, taught me that time and thought and personalization and creativity, anything you put into like making life beautiful and artistic is is kind of the difference between ordinary and extraordinary. And so much of my life was magical because of the details she put into absolutely everything and is largely why I even have the career I do that's in so many different areas and why I'm willing to try so many things because I just believe in creative expression and art and the importance of filling in the more serious, rigid aspects of life with the more flowery, beautiful things that extract joy and, and supplement it. And there's space for both. There's careers to exist in both. And there always has been. And while there's an overlap that shouldn't be ignored with capitalism, I think that 
the underlying theme is really important and price agnostic, and it's the power of of effort, of attention to detail, of experimentation. And yes, we should work hard and be charitable and vote and care for others and climb the ladder and save the planet. But like, I want to look fierce as hell doing all of those things. And when I come home from, you know, running shit all day and need a soft place to land, I hope that place is a barefoot dreams blanket. The, the, the things influencers share, how we make a home and what we eat and what we wear and the parties we throw and the gestures we do for people and the projects we take on and the way we organize our lives, it might not fit into a traditional definition of a career that yields meaningful contribution to the world, but it's, it's not that black and white. It's better to quote a random person I've definitely never quoted and I don't really think about much. These efforts and, and, and details and small joys turn life from black and white into screaming color. Literally, because there's been some aggressive color blocking happening over the years, but I'll I'll end my soliloquy there. But I I just think the type of content that and the type of products, and I I guess I'm speaking more so to bloggers than anything, that they provide is important. It has purpose and it's added a great deal of value to my life. And I'll now go into why I think this what I think has happened and why what this look like looks like is kind of shifted over the years, but the heart of it's still there. And my point really is that when you think of the categories influencers historically represent, you know, starting with fashion and lifestyle bloggers, mommy bloggers, the, you know, Chip and Jojo era of young house love renovation bloggers, and then, you know, health and fitness gurus, and then bachelor nation style overnight influencers, you know, a lot of these things, as I mentioned, are associated with women's interests. And in most cases, a group of men finding revenue streams and developing monetization strategies from brand new platforms with no blueprints they know nothing about would be incredibly impressive. It would be innovation. It'd be category creation. They'd be disruptors. But a group of women pioneering this industry in those categories at a cursory glance is often perceived as disruptive to the far more respectable status quo of the type of real jobs people should have, the type of real fame we should respect. And in a country where we romanticize entrepreneurship, how is that different? Knowing what we know about corruption and nepotism and the downfalls of attaining traditional celebrity, why do we push back on this democratic process of trying to make something of ourselves, make ourselves be well known, not for a character we play, but for who we are? Like when you think about it at a high level, it's far more lyrical than criminal. The type of content shared is genuinely helpful on on so many fronts, independent of its motivation or its delivery. And while nothing isn't without its flaws, I just think there's an unnecessary trivializing of this space that you know when you when i really think about it if it's not all that deep then why do people so deeply resent it you know like what's been done in the influencer space over the past 10 to 15 years is has been largely pioneered by women it's literal category creation navigating something that could have been perceived to be temporary and frivolous into something sustainable and you know taking a hobby and making it into an industry and being able to delicately find a way for the most part to positively commodify one's life to make oneself the product to to make a living off of living what has been done in the space is incredibly impressive and i'll argue for its merits all day spelled d-a-e because i have tried amber filler up here caroline and it is fantastic and that's a separate note is a lot of people aren't just blogging now they have full-on businesses that are very worthy of being taken seriously and um anyways i don't know what that was other than to express my affinity for the heart of the job and from where it started because i certainly 
I, I certainly have such a soft spot for the early days of blogging and Pinterest and what that meant for my life. And if any of that kind of thought process, I don't know, I just like want to disassemble some of the bias of what mainstream society doesn't like about influencers. I think the nexus is rooted in something pure. And that's part of the problem, at least with my frustration is of watching the shift over the years is while I respect the hell out of the hustle and what they made it into the, the, the business model and the affiliate links and the brand partnerships and the like, they've made something pure seem strategic. And, you know, there's irony in commoditizing the art of personal recommendation, you know, like celebrities have endorsements and like we get it, like they're getting paid a shit ton of money. And we some for some reason do not care if Jennifer Aniston has dry eyes or not. Um, but when something that an influencer or blogger hawks that on the surface seems to come from the goodness of their heart and underneath is very much a capitalistic venture like any other, you know, it's like a little bit conflicting and off-putting and kind of creates this sort of um, tension where we don't feel like they should have the right to monetize this recommendation, where if they're a relatable real person, we're supposed to look to as one of us when they don't operate as one of us, when they capitalize on us, we feel uncomfortable by it. And I don't think that's wrong. But I think it is worth taking a step back and really thinking through the logic of why that upsets us. I feel like I just blacked out for 20 minutes. It's <laughs> like uh, geometric terrariums, marble trays, candles, coffee table books, flat lays. Ooh, train tracks. When did train track? <laughs> anyway, or like, you know, Stanley Tucci and the D wears P, Devil Wears Prada, uh, schooling Anne Hathaway on why fashion matters. It's It's funny. I could... I could write poetry about like, and I really see the poetic side of most things. I'm not like obsessed with influencers, but I just think that like, I don't know. I just think about all the fun things I've made for people and the outfits inspo I've gotten and like parties I've made special. And I don't know, like joys I've shared as they've like had kids and gotten married. And like, there's just like a lot of like joy and positivity and the type of content they share. And um, I don't know. What would the diff, what would the devil wears Prada of influencers be? Because I guess they do sometimes wear Prada, but like that's not just fashion bloggers. Like the devil makes chicken piccata. Honestly, the more accurate thing is like the devil wears a somersault one shoulder one piece bathing suit. Because like it just looks like a Neapolitan ice cream. It's not that cute, and I just I like, don't really get it. I'm sure they have other cute stuff, but like somersault is a it it is developing into a conspiracy to the likes of FabFitFun. Where before I understood it and got it, I was like. Who are you and why do you have so much money and why is everyone endorsing you? Or like Tula. It's it's kind of interesting how these brands creep out of nowhere, have these bonks marketing budgets, and we're just supposed to like agree that they're the best, but nobody you actually know has ever tried it, but every influencer you follow it seems to live by it. You know, there's something weird about the equation there. But anyway, as I mentioned, I, I think that people hate influencers for so many different reasons. And I just think the nature of uh one's life being the product um is it's impossible because a human's gonna need a, a level of privacy but when you kind of operate under the guise of there not being privacy that you're an open book that what's yours is theirs yet you pull back it's of course going to be met with disdain and i think that what we have to be okay with is us allegedly knowing people but per taylor swift once again only being comfortable with the version of themselves they choose to show us and i think the forums and facebook groups and the like obsess over trying to find the version of somebody that they're not showing us and i am not trying to always bring it back to matters of, of gender of sexism but i do think that like there's this tendency to paint women as these one-dimensional sinister characters that we want to fulfill this this really manipulative controlling narrative of 
you know, only wanting to make a buck and wanting us to see them a certain way and controlling the way that we feel about them and deleting all the negative comments. And just like we almost characterize influencers who've kind of like had enough of the negativity, be these like superficial monsters trying to make a buck off of showing their life we could never attain. And it's interesting to me of when it sours to like, oh, this is person's life and their reality and they're showing us how to do X, Y, Z because it's sharing and it's helpful to when it's like, oh, that's that person, you know, giving providing a needless display of wealth that's going to make all of us feel like shit. It's just a fine line. It's a confusing space. And when your life is the commodity, but the commodity needs to meet demands of the consumer as if it's a variable product, it's confusing because you want to just live your truth and live your reality, but your reality isn't always meeting demand. So when you're monetizing your reality, it becomes an impossible ask of both providing the type of content people need, but also managing the feedback in a way that isn't hugely internalized and personal and and affecting the way you move forward. Um, I think that we have to be okay with the lack of honesty and transparency to a degree because there just can't be. If If you, they can't always just be acting out of the goodness of their own heart or else they wouldn't be making money. But we, we need, we want people to make money. We want women to make all the money. We want people to crush it. Do we want it to do them to do it ethically? Do we want them to comply with the original mission of why they're even in this influential position in the first place? Like, yeah, that's the best case scenario. But I think what, the weird catch-22 is a lot of the people that sour and separate and start to treat their followers poorly are the ones that just feel really burned by their following and feel like they can't win and are de-energized by the criticism. And I do think there's a balance to be struck in between those things or else people aren't going to continue to create and evolve. And um, I think that, like, intuitively, Instagram's recreational. It's it's a silly way we stay in touch, often humble brag about our vacations and homes and lifestyles. And, you know, we're the critic and the participant. That's a big reason why I wrote the book Twinkle Twinkle Social Media Star was because I wanted to make fun of it, but also admit that, like, it's everything I've ever gotten in my career is as a result of Instagram. Like I even got that book deal because I had a small following at the time. It's like the irony of all ironies. We need it and we hate it. And we're the first to skewer it, but the next to like, I don't know, hop right on the skewer and bask in the glow of the social rotisserie. I feel like it's the second time I've used like a metaphor of like meat spinning tonight. And I don't know what's happening. Um, but I, I think that it's an important thing to factor in of like our baseline irritation is like, I don't know, I'd imagine not wedding planners. I'm trying to think of another industry where like you're, you're nine to five, like your work, your blood, sweat and tears is everyone else's recreation. And that in, of, in and of itself is just a difficult thing to combat and for people to view the work that goes into it, because anything that looks easy and is breezy and bright and aesthetic and fun and entertaining is that way because so much work went into it. It looks shitty if there was no work put into it and you wouldn't even enjoy it as that, you know, element of recreation. And I I, like I also just think there's kind of these like, I I don't know, underlying psychological things there that make me think of um, high school, you know, like there's so many influencers out there. Like, of course, we can't like they're not all going to be liked or liked by everybody. That's just like human nature. And uh, but the ones that are popular, like I remember thinking so many of the popular girls in high school, like uh, I, I just was like, they're not that great. Like, I don't get it. What's the hype? And it made me resent them. But it wasn't at all about who they were. It was because I didn't align with other people's reaction to them. And I think sometimes when I don't identify with or possess the things that give people enormous pull and influence, it's hard for me because it's not a great case for someone like me having pull and influence. And you know what I mean? like. I think that it's kind of what I was saying about Rachel Hollis. I'm like, do I dislike what she's, do I dislike her 
Or do I dislike how many people love what she's doing? You know, like she has the right to like have her own message in life. I think I'm irritated that that I don't agree with it. And so many other people do. And I think there's a self-awareness there that needs to go into like why we don't like people, because so often the really popular influencers that I'm like, I don't get their vibe or their taste or their messaging or the way they talk. I'm just like, I mean, they have the right to exist. Like women can exist as they are without us having an opinion on every individual thing they do. I think more often than not. It's just they're just things that aren't my values, aren't my principles, aren't things I want people like putting out into the world. And it annoys me. They have big followings. And um, I don't know. I, I think we all think we're the good guy and we all think we're the likable one. And like we have the best taste to know what should and shouldn't fly. Um, but I, I and I just don't think anybody actively consciously acts from an unlikable place or thinks they have nothing to offer. And like good for anybody that puts themselves out there like that. I hope we all feel proud of our gifts and thoughts and contributions independence of some independent of somebody else's validation. But when the things you value don't feel valuable to other people um, in your reference group, I think there's a natural defense. If somebody that's different from you or does things in opposition to you seems to be more valued or more popular or whatever. And it's not like we're all even trying to be influencers, but. I think that it's a natural defense when something is crushing it that you don't really understand. It kind of impedes on your self-worth a bit. And it shouldn't. And I feel this daily. I have to check myself. This is a huge entertainment in general right now. Like there's a huge disconnect between quality and popularity. And it makes you criticize the popular person when really you're annoyed at the high volumes of people that like something you don't. And I, I'm always trying to remind myself as I want other people to do the same for me. It's just to like, whether you get it or not, let other people have fans, let them have followers, let them have dedicated patrons of whatever else, whatever the hell else it is they want to do. Like, I've been thinking about jo- Jojo Siwa a lot lately, watching her on TikTok. She's always on my For You page. And I never watched Dance Moms. I don't really understand her. And like everybody else, I am concerned for the traction alopecia. But she did this dance to a song that was like about never changing who she is like and being unapologetic. And I was like, what do I want from this life? More ass models and people pandering to the middle of what they know will get a lot of likes and follows on Instagram, which is just going the full objectification route. Like you don't have to show your personality. You just like bend over. There's a place for that too. And I want people to feel empowered by their bodies. But as a person that didn't really feel empowered by my body or looks for much of my life, I was so grateful to the people that led with their personality, that led with their humor, that led with their skill sets that had nothing to do with their physical appearance. And I think Jojo is so unapologetically herself that like, why am I, I don't know, criticizing her for not pandering to the more mainstream middle of what I think is a more palatable way to act? Why aren't, why aren't I cheering on somebody who's extremely quirky, who's kind of fundamentally acting in an unsexy way that isn't popular for famous 16 year olds to be acting like? She is colorful and crazy and zany, but a talented dancer and has an aesthetic she likes. And if she wants to stick to it, so be it. I'm trying to kind of reconsider a lot of what I deem to be like making like worthy of making fun of or or problematic, because in an instance like that, I just think it's awesome that people have examples of people that are ridiculed or but are saying fuck it anyway, you know, and I guess with that, the ass model of it all. This is a different conversation for empowerment versus uh, objectification for a different day. That's a complicated one that I need to like talk to an expert about in terms of like, I grew up in a very um, like, as I talk about like youth groups and church camps, I feel like my reference group and like the, in my formative years when I was taught about sex, it was very sex negative and it was a very shame centric culture. 
I need to talk to somebody who's more open and from a more sex positive culture to like understand how to talk about how to frame and how to encourage people who like want to lead with their sexiness because it's not my instinct <laughs> as if that's news to you you know my strategy isn't sexy like obviously um but i i don't know it's it's uh, whatever that's a conversation for a different day but i think a sub bullet of why influencers are frustrating in terms of like it being a recreational activity for the rest of us is also thinking about the motivation behind it and like why do you post stuff on Instagram? Like, yeah, to share with like friends and family, of course. But there are other things we don't want to admit. Like, we like attention. We want to brand our lives a certain way. We want to keep up appearances. We we think we look cute. We want to show them what he's missing. Like, you know, at least that's what I used to do. Um, sometimes we're socially responsible and like aiming to be helpful, and we tell people to vote and we share interesting articles. Like, sure, a lot of us do plenty of that. But I think Instagram's roots fall in. <clears throat> a more superficial aesthetic place. And that's kind of where your head goes. And when you think about doing those things on a large scale, like looking cute and bragging and getting attention, just like the rest of us clowns, but you're making a shit ton of money from it. That's like baseline annoying. And um, it just seems like a thing that's like not worth that. It's so easy for us because we're not putting <clears throat> that much thought or some of us aren't, I definitely, it takes me years to like filter a photo and take, figure out a caption. Whenever people upload in real time, I'm like, how did it not take you two hours to write that caption? (laughs) Um, But I I think that with the like frustration of something that's easy for us, seeming to be able to be monetized for somebody else as if like it's deserving of that kind of money. When people don't do a good job, with the the balance of content sponsored content it just like makes the case all the worse it's kind of like what stephanie said with the magazine um you need if you're gonna have a magazine it's a content medium that's ad supported you have way less ads than actual articles um and i think that to be a career influencer you either have to be like so so popular you can like supplementally support it with ads that are few and far between Or if you want to be a career influencer kind of prematurely and do like the token influencer best practices, you almost have to have such a high volume of ads to justify that you're not as big yet. So then your content becomes mostly ads and less content. And it's just like so off putting. And to me, affiliate links do count in this ad space where you can't just always be trying to make a buck. There has to be an exchange of value, like I've said a million times. And in the you're like you're supposed to be monetizing my eyeballs because you provide something to me in exchange. But in the absence of doing that, you can't just make money off of me because you simply exist because I simply hit follow and forgot to unfollow. Like just because you're simply spending time on something doesn't mean you simply are allowed to charge for it unless you are exchanging value with your end user. And this is why, like when people try to charge for stuff too quick, come right out the gate trying to like sell merch, make money. It's just like what you need to earn trust, build relationships, create value, make yourself indispensable. And be doing something for people in order to charge for it. Followers don't equal the right to charge. I know most people from Bachelor Nation just get them overnight and then like hawk dangerous diet products and then call themselves an influencer and it, you know, soils the rest of the industry as a whole. But I think for most people, you work on building the relationship, the engagement, the trust, and you become influential over time. And an influencer is not just something you call yourself. It's less of a title and more of a thing that you earn, I think. Okay, now I want to get into the business model. Um, I think, like, you guys are smart and you get this, and I don't want to, like, Kate, explain this to you because I know you get it. Um, but 
if just to kind of like provide a high level of of how an influencer would make money following, you know, developing a following or, you know, having a blog or YouTube, whatever, like most entertainment mediums are very similar. Speaking of real quick, I want to thank one of our sponsors this week, largely driven by you guys because you used and enjoyed the service. And a popular question is, you know, how do we support content creators we love? And honestly, when I pick advertisers that I really genuinely enjoy, you supporting them is supporting me. And one of these that has been super relevant the past several months is Skillshare. And it's an online learning community with thousands of classes for creative and curious people. And you can explore your skills and deepen your existing passions and kind of get lost in your creativity. And you guys know that's something I feel very strongly about. I want I don't want anybody to feel like they have to use this time in any one way. But I for me, it's never wasteful to lose track of time in a creative project. I always come out of it feeling better, even if I never use it or no one ever sees it. And Skillshare has so many awesome classes for artistic and business ventures alike or making your art venture into a business. Right now, I'm watching a lot of videos about the ins and outs of YouTube and monetization and like titling your videos and all this stuff because I'm trying to figure out if it makes sense for me to put podcast videos on there. A lot of people do both like just audio and visual and visual. And yeah, I'm just like learning or at least even trying to figure out if it's something I want to venture into. And I was kind of looking at their marketing classes too, especially with this influencer conversation we're having if anybody like wants to sharpen their skills and from like storytelling to personal branding to developing a social media strategy to search engine optimization to creating your brand imagery and how to grow followers and go viral making a podcast i mean like honestly it's it's kind of crazy how much is available here relative to like how much coaches and gurus and webinars will ch- charge you for like one super generic broad strokes instructional you can really learn specific skills here that are practical and useful and um i think that now more than ever these are great ways to spend your time so you can explore your creativity and get two free months of premium membership at skillshare.com slash be there in five that's two whole months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free and you can get started and join today by heading to skillshare.com slash be there in five i always like to mention that is just how the show is spelled not the number five f-i-v-e so two free months, unlimited access, thousands of classes, Skillshare.com slash be there in five. And please reach out and tell me what you're making, what you're learning more of. I, I haven't found a recorder class, but that's probably by design to like save the planet of that noise that I played at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> Thanks to Skillshare. All right. So now to the business model, which I don't know, I, like I think it's really hard to make meaningful money uh, just like as a random person. <laughs> think about it. If you're not, it's one thing to be already famous. And to just have different extensions on social media, podcasts, whatever, as additional revenue streams. But to be a person who's just like, I think I'm interesting and I have stuff to say and to like grow organically through that. It takes so much time, so much consistency, so much unpaid labor. And um, it's just not as easy as it looks. And I'd argue that a big issue of why, uh, like, I don't know, I don't want to like oversimplify, but I, I think that some of the cringiness that comes with influencers and bloggers are kind of the people that it's like there's a people that paved the path and figured out how to monetize this that did it slowly and over time and maybe quit their jobs eventually blah 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 it's kind of like what i said that you influence is something you earn it's not something you have um but now there's kind of like a more recent wave of bloggers that feel less organic that they like sought out to be a blogger slash influencer as a career instead of like as a secondary tertiary thing or as a side hustle they'd eventually turn into career they just like come out right out the gate wanting to be an influencer slash blogger 
they deploy the best practices of a blogger that done over time and done like a little bit more palatably and subtly are fine. But when you do it every single post, like the crazy captions and the call to action and engagement in the comments, like, what do you guys think? Tell me what you're up to today. That just don't seem insincere. The loop giveaways that are utter bullshit. The, you know, constant swipe ups, constant ads, the ads for products that don't align with with them whatsoever, that are clearly just a grab for a buck, the lack of care for synergy with the type of stuff they promote versus who they are, the lack of knowledge of who they are, really, because it's so much sponsored content and the like being in groups of other bloggers that all do very similar things that are borderline indiscernible, but almost with the solidarity of like, this is the job, this is the industry, this is the business, follow us all you know, all 49 of us like comment tag four friends. And maybe if you're lucky in the one in a million chance, you'll get this Peloton bike, we'll give it to you. It's kind of this interesting thing of where I think there there is like intersecting of a lot of like bloggers, I love do these things. And that's fine, too. I'm not saying it's wrong. But I do think there's a different way an influencers intentions or like vibe lands with people when it seems like you've kind of done this slowly and earned it. Versus you're just trying to like copy what a bunch of other people do that looks like a blogger influencer so you can call yourself one and then there's a lack of sincerity. But that paired with you having an insanely large following is what makes us confused and a little resentful because we're like, why are so many people falling for this? But like we're there too. every follow you give, you're casting a vote for the money you want somebody to make because your follow is serving as a currency for how they value their digital real estate. And um, when people get all these followers through if they buy them or through loop giveaways or whatever, it's just frustrating because. If there's like an apples to apples situation and and the, the, you know, the followers of one are valued the same as the followers of another person who did it more organically, that's like a frustrating case for people that have done it like low and slow because cheaters win, (laughs) like they get ahead. And I think that there's just like a certain type of blogger that makes people off put by them as a whole, but I'd argue they're a more recent brand. Um, And that's like a huge random generalization. Uh, But then I think that there's even worse than that, <laughs> even separate from that are like the overnight influencers, the bachelor, bachelor in paradise people that literally don't even try to add value, try to make other content. They simply get a lot of followers because they went on a big TV show. And you'd be so stupid to not capitalize on this, by the way. I don't blame them, but it is a different type of um, I think like I think slash hope marketers realize there should be kind of a dollar amount or or perceived value attached with these like types of influencers because somebody like a like a grace atwood who puts a ton of time and effort into their media properties who does a lot of research in terms of like skincare and has carved out a kind of subject matter expertise and niche with their followers about what they go to her for like a skincare company like it's going to push so much more product through her because people trust her and it's a result of a relationship she's built over time over like a McKenna who popped up on pilot Pete season of the bachelor and is bummed because like, obviously the world's not operating. So her following is tepid when it could be soaring if she was on paradise this season. But if she works with like a random skincare company, like I cannot imagine the conversion is there, but I don't know that for a fact, but like, it's just a different type of influencer where you go on TV, you get a bunch of followers and you're going to monetize them. And that's the logic of like, bodies equals value which i don't know enough about the data to say definitively that is or is not effective but i just feel like the quality of the products those types of influencer gets is usually like shitty health nutrition fitness stuff like sugar bear hair 
Um, I'm actually not opposed to a vitamin. This girl's got to eat advertised for one recently that I'm really into, but we'll talk about that some other time. Um, <laughs> I like, I think, I don't think everything in this certain industry is like all bad or all as bad advertising intent, but like, I do think there's a, just a type of product that you see the same people hawk over and over. And they're usually people that aren't like going out of their way to provide consistent content or a blog. They just kind of like post photos of them and their bachelor in paradise cast off boyfriend that they're still currently with. doesn't mean I don't like them. I think Deanie babies and Kaylin Miller keys are cute, cute as can be. What do I know? All I mean is I think that just like there's like paid earned and owned media, there's paid earned and owned uh, types of influencers in terms of how they garner their following. You can pay for it and you can cheat for it. You can earn it the ethical way, the slow way, and the highly trustworthy relationship building way. Or, and when I say own it, it's kind of like another entity, just kind of like past ownership of this large volume of exposure. You yourself didn't have to earn, but you didn't pay for it either. Um, and yeah, I just kind of think that they all aren't created equal and that some of the ones who cut corners or do like really shitty endorsements or whatever, give them all a bad name. But I think it's worth separating out, especially a lot of the um, women we mentioned on the, on episode two, like a lot of people do a really great job and have worked really hard to earn your trust and aren't just there for like a capitalistic venture to make a buck. It may have turned into that, but the purity of intention at the onset, I think is really telling in terms of, you know, how they're making money now uh, because it's, that trust takes forever to build and one mistake to break <laughs> and people don't mess around with these really devoted followings because to back to the pricing point influencer pricing is feels like smoke and mirrors and it feels really vague because at the end of the day the thing that matters is the their ability to convert to purchase behavior their ability to drive a campaign's core kpis you know it's like when a advertiser has a campaign and they want it to yield maybe it's awareness maybe it's purchase behavior. Maybe it's basket size. You know, it, it could be any goal. But when they're trying to figure out the best way to reach those goals and evaluating media touch points, they need influencers that are ultimately going to be able to convert those dollars in whatever way they want customers to um, behave. And I'd argue the big bucks and the agencies that work with the the you know influencers, regardless of size you know, over the 100,000 mark, I, I, but I feel like it's more about your case studies and your ability to prove that you were able to drive a certain ROI for previous advertisers and like blinded case studies. And that's kind of what I used when I was trying to like, you know, get data products into the hands of advertisers to showcase their validity, using like teaser data, case studies, examples of what you can do for somebody is ultimately going to be way more effective than any rate card based off of followers alone. And I think a lot of the good ones do that. Um, I think that they're like rules of thumbs without people rules of thumb without people might price their types of posts or whatever. But I guess to backtrack and again, I don't want to Kate explain oversimplify, but just to like do this wing to wing. I think you have to think through this business model because it will make you resent it less. So um, you're following a person, the potential of your eyes to see something they share serves as a currency for how people value the real estate of their Instagram static posts and stories, blog posts, YouTube videos, whatever it may be. And your follow matters and viewership matters and audience matters because any sort of programming or entertainment um, outlet, the there's two ways it can be monetized there's two potential revenue streams subscriber fees or ad revenue subscriber fee like think of it as hbo versus nbc if somebody's providing you programming content that costs money to create or costs time to create it, and you're getting some sort of entertainment value out of it 
They're not doing it out of the goodness of their own hearts. They have to monetize it. So either you can pay a subscriber fee up front and have no ads. Uh, it's kind of like Patreon uh, in the podcast world, but in the media world, it's like HBO. Um, and or you can have you can monetize those eyeballs with ad revenue, which is passive and they don't have to agree to. You just have ads embedded in the programs, which is like in NBC or for this podcast sake, iTunes. So HBO versus NBC, Patreon versus iTunes. It's like either way you have to make money. Do you want to charge people up front or do you want to have embedded ads in the passive assumption that people's eyeballs are being monetized? The value of whatever entertainment or programming you're providing is directly tied to the volume of eyeballs that have potential to see it or hear it in the podcast example. But it's the oldest ad model in the world. It's a tale as old as time. It is something people should not complain about. And anybody providing anything to you that is actually adding value and entertaining you for free, let them have ads, let them have sponsored content. It's it's not new and it's ridiculous to crusade against it just because it's an entertainment medium that doesn't look, look like other ones. And if you're not entertained and you are, you're, they are not adding value, unfollow them because your follow is casting a vote. Your follow is contributing to a currency that values that real estate. So if you don't, that's why it's like, I'm not the best unfollower and I'll complain. Like I'm not perfect, but I just mean logically. It's why you can't complain about SpawnCon because if you really don't think that they're doing something that contributes to your day-to-day in a meaningful way that warrants their ability to make money off of it, then you shouldn't even be paying attention to it, right? So this is where like, you know, things get a little bit murky. But anyway, pricing of influencer content, I'd argue is more arbitrary than a lot of more traditional media that's more of an exposure a potential exposure based model i think influencers can incorporate so many coefficients into their value and that's why it's probably hard to get a straightforward answer about how much they charge because yeah there's like their track record case studies examples of their ability to convert but then there's also like their engagement and the type of content and how much work in production do they put into a video versus just a static post there's There's so many variables to it, period. It's kind of hard to say, but I did some research. I wanted to provide benchmarks for you of how people price in their influencer content, but people keep this very close to their chest. Uh, An influencer rate card, I feel like, is just something that there's very little transparency about and nobody really knows what the other charges. And it's almost like this thing where there's probably a lot of people undercharging as a result and probably a lot of people that aren't getting work because they're really overcharging. Forbes did a study um, where they interviewed 1,600 influencers from 40 countries with a tiered following range from 5,000 over a million. Of the 1,600 respondents, 69% were female, 31% were male. So what they found on average, what's infuriating is that they're like... Somehow they found there's a gender. This is from January of 2020. There's a gender pay gap, even among influencer content, like Instagram posts and stories like we should run this town like it's such bullshit. I I could go into a tangent about men being called content creators and that having a stigma. And as Stephanie talked about the mainstream entry of people like David Dobrik into society and they get all these legitimate, more traditional media interviews and are perceived so differently, whereas like bloggers are never given that opportunity. But again, I tangent for a different day. Anyways, back on topic. So if this is a helpful frame of reference at all, Forbes said among the 1600 people they interviewed, um, the average price you could charge for a story, if you have five to 20,000 followers for women is $28. If there's 20 to 100,000 followers it's 212 dollars 
and over a million followers, it's $1,693 for an Insta story. I'd argue that is extremely low. And for the record, the average um, pr- like cost per story of male influencers is 27% higher. And I can't even like take that on right now. But um, okay, so then for a post and a story, Forbes says that among 100,000 to a million followers, for a static post and one story, the average price would be $1,900. And for over a million followers, it'd be 5915 which is a crazy jump. Because like a story alone at over a million followers, they're saying the average uh, that somebody charged was 1600 You tack on a static post to that and the price goes up $4,000. It's so interesting. Um, but again, I'd argue that these numbers are low. I don't think anybody with over 100,000 followers is charging less than $1,500 for a post. Like even like a story series. I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. But um, I I know of people in between 50 and 100K that are charging more than that. So but again, there's it's not as um, straightforward as like podcasts, TV, radio, whatever. It's not a CPM. There's a lot more that goes into perceived value. These are really wide bands. to you to group a range of 100k to 999k those are very different numbers um so i don't know how i feel about this but then i was looking at another source this is like a white paper i read from 2019 that i then cross-checked and i saw this several times over on the internet is that the general baseline rule of thumb for how people can price like instagram content is a hundred dollars per ten thousand followers this sounds low to me based on what I'd charge for a CPM personally, because that means at 50,000 followers, I'd get $500 for a post. And I don't know if this is shocking or sounds weird or not, but I'd call that low. And I'm not saying that arbitrarily because like I'm worth it. I'm saying that because of how I perceive CPMs in general. For context, I worked at Nielsen for six years, the TV ratings company. I was acted as a liaison for ad- advertising effectiveness between major consumer packaged goods brands. And the um, data behind TV, online, mobile, radio, etc. I helped them understand how viewership and audience data, consumer behavior data should drive their media plan across platforms in order to reach their campaign goals, be it reach, be it frequency, be it purchase behavior, awareness, whatever. There's a lot of buzzwords. My my point is I do have a background in um, media investment. And the way I it really kind of frames the way I think of um, influencer marketing, because I think it's so cheap relative to other mediums and it's so much easier to tie to conversion than other mediums. And I think that that is a big reason why it will always argue that this is not the end of the influencer. They are not going anywhere, because if anything, even if the consumers are annoyed, they're not going to unfollow as dictated by my survey. If anything, you're more likely to stick around to see what happens next if somebody is mired in controversy. And beyond that. Who's going to keep these people afloat are the marketers because influencer marketing is effective and it's affordable. And if you do it well and you have a good track record and you have a case study that can make your variable cost higher than those with a more fixed cost tied directly to followers, you're going to do well and you're going to be able to charge more. And if you have the clout and you're good at your job, like you can kind of charge more for just being you. And that's not a really straightforward pricing model, even among the people who I know what they charge. Um, there, there's such, there's a very disparate, disparate ways people look at this, but I think every influencer is a little bit different just as any, you know, endorser of any product would be a little bit different. Um, but I think there are baseline rules of thumb that you can think about, but then you have to factor in all of the things that would be tacked onto that. 
So that $100 per 10,000 to me is low, but I don't think people actually charge that. But that aligns more closely with the Forbes thing, which is interesting too. So what the hell do I know? But to tell you where I'm coming from, um, podcasts are priced on a CPM basis. That means cost per thousand people. So that's why I was saying if you get $100 on Instagram for every 10,000 followers, that is $10 for every 1,000 followers. The way a podcast is priced is per thousand downloads. What do I want to charge? And you try to negotiate a CPM. These vary on so many different things from number of episodes, length of agreement, duration, pre-roll, mid-roll, just overall, like, you know, bargaining power leverage. Um, I don't know, like in my limited experience, I'd say it's like more of a lowest $20 to like $50 range at the higher end, maybe higher. uh, I'm going to say $40 for like kind of a high-ish middle ground, because I think that for podcasts that are like actually delivering that's a realistic CPM. But again, like I'm just picking numbers here. I can't tell you how much I make off podcast ads because it's different for every advertiser because I have year long agreements. I have month tests. I have some that I've driven a ton of revenue for others. I'm just starting out with. I have some that prefer a certain type of ad than others. Like it's there. This kind of like the influencer rate card thing. It's like you can't really say specifically what something's worth because it's just going to depend on a variety of negotiation variables but people think that podcasts like if if you want to make money soon quickly and a lot of it don't start a podcast unless you're already famous but if you actually like talking to people if you actually like kind of the spoken word and would find joy in figuring out all of the minutia of like getting it hosted and uploaded and edited and like, you know, doing all of the sound perfecting and then figuring out how to monetize it and getting guests and branding it and all that stuff. Like there's so much, it's so much work and it was work I did for free for a year and a half because I was uh, staying afloat with my other business. And um, once I actually began to be able to monetize it, it was a game changer. And I feel like podcasts are a funny thing where I, they're viewed as like hobbies or like a thing everybody has or like it's a really easy thing to do and not tuning my own horn here but rather arguing for my industry uh if you like if you're an existing celebrity and you have an existing big audience and you want another revenue stream there's a million ad networks and companies that will represent you give you the equipment do all the technical work for you do all the editing uh keep you on a schedule you just talk you send it to them or you leave the studio and that's that um, building a podcast ground up is a shit ton of work. And I'd be lying to you if I told you otherwise. And it's a lot of unpaid work to the tune of 18 ish and change months for me. And now it's so worth it. But I think that a lot of people have podcasts, but a lot of people quit podcasts because it's, it feels like a disproportionate amount of work to the pay until you get to a point where you can get paid. Um, and I like to give you a frame of reference for download numbers. I know a lot of people are interested in this. And this is a question people asked. Also for the Q and a, like a lot of the stuff I'm talking about now are questions people asked. So like, I don't want you to think I'm sh- make, cutting the Q and a short when really I changed the content to match what people wanted to know. Cause so many people were like very confused about <clears throat> podcasting itself, which isn't even the focal point of this conversation, but whatever, we'll go off on the tangent um, to give a frame of reference to, for like podcast downloads. So the top 2% of podcasts have, I think, 20,000 downloads an episode. Podcasting is weird because 
um, 20,000 doesn't sound like a big number, but what actually for that many people to actively download your episode or stream it, listen to it is pretty high because unlike followers, it's an active amount of participation and not a potential exposure, if that makes sense. Uh, this is why I don't think it should be priced on a CPM. And I'll, I'm frustrated with the old school business model of podcasting relative to it being a new media format that is higher engagement, but we don't need to get into that. Um, but it does sound kind of crazy when you think about 20,000 downloads being the top 2%, but it takes, it took me forever to get there. And that's like, typically you negotiate an ad with the, the number of downloads within like a 45 day period, because not everybody listens to podcasts immediately, but slight detour that's worth mentioning. Okay. Th- I just feel like this is all really inside baseball. And I feel like people bitch when people like influencers talk about the algorithm or something. You know what I mean? I, I, I just, I don't know. I hope this is interesting. <laughs> Um, engagement's an interesting thing too. And it's a good way, as we all know, to gauge like the legitimacy of somebody's following. Um, because it's, yeah, you can value your content on how many people have the potential to see something based on your follower count. But at the end of the day, all that matters is people's interaction with you, right? And this is why people are constantly asking you questions. So you'll answer in the comments. So their engagement goes up, obviously. Uh, But stuff like, you know, you have less control over like who views your Instagram story. I think it's so interesting because it's just a game. It's you can't really game the story system. You, You have to be really consistent. You have to get people used to your stories. You have to become a stopover in their day to day life. And um advertisers like will have you send screenshots of your stories data and um like i know for a regular static post like to calculate engagement like a typical influencer engagement at least the last i checked i don't know if this is um uh par for the course now but you would just like look at all of their posts for like the last month let's say or a period of time um add the total number of likes and comments and divide that by the number of posts and within that time period, and then they have you have the average engagement per post, and then you divide that by the number of followers they have times 100. That's like an engagement rate percentage. That's, I've said that quickly, but you can look that up anywhere. It's like a pretty straightforward calculation. And like less than one percent is obviously low. Between one and three and a half is average. Three and a half percent to six percent is high. Above six percent is very high. And that's I'd argue with I think with static posts themselves. So, like, if I look at some of my posts, the one uh, where I did the parent trap handshake with myself when quarantine started. Wow, that seems like years ago is has seven percent engagement Um, or like my pink power suit is six percent. A weird photo of me on New Year's Eve that I think is just really about my bold lip is five percent. Or like when I podcasted with Heather McMahon, you guys love her. That's five percent. Those are all high engagement. But then I have like really, really low ones, too. Like. I don't know. This is a random post of the first wives club dance that I used as a theme song for Taylor Swift's uh, battle with Scooter Braun and Scott Borchetta and the fight to owner masters. It was a very popular podcast episode, but as an Instagram post as 1.3% engagement, because it's just like the first wives club scene. Everybody's seen before. Um, typically any post about like a podcast episode is pretty low engagement and more so just like, you know, an informative post. And I, treat those differently than like something where i'm actually trying to get people you know pull people in whether it's my uh tiktok dancing (laughs) or videos of tugboat to like lizzo's boys song um i actually with my i don't have a strategy again i don't 
I don't consider myself like a traditional influencer because I don't monetize my Instagram. Like I, it's really there for entertainment. I don't put a ton of thought into it, but I think analytics are interesting. I never look at who views my stories because it gives me anxiety. Like, I just don't, I don't know, sometimes somebody from like high school or my parents' friend or like a, a distant relative and I'm just like, what? And it makes, it's like, I, those are the things I keep. It's like, it'd be one thing if I was like monetizing it for advertisers, if I had to pay close attention to the analytics or something, but I don't. That's why I've left Instagram to be like light and entertaining and ancillary. I, I wanted to support anything that I do to generate revenue, but not be my meal ticket. Um, because I don't want to have to overthink it. And I think that for me, that works is <laughs> uh, being unstrategic and kind of just like if you identify with me and the type of stuff I like, if and when I feel like posting, I do. I hope people like it. And that's just kind of all I can really hope for. Um, I definitely misstep a lot and definitely struggle with like the consistency in terms of genre quite a bit. But um, anyway, uh, and a lot of people hate that I write on black, white font on black writing. People get really mad at me about that. I just don't really know what else to do. There's no other color I really vibe with. But this, I mean, I think stories are such a more effective medium because like on the high end, if I have like 7% engagement on a static post, that's like exciting. But like 25% of my following watches my stories. It's, it's like, I don't know, 20, it's like anywhere from 12 to 14,000 probably. Like my scavenger hunt was somewhere on the higher end. Um, I think people thought there's going to be a helicopter on my roof. Uh, there was tiramisu, very close. Uh, we're we're in trying times, guys. I can't uh, whisk be whisking my husband off like Dorit whisks PK and his uh, James Banya, where she then performed Fever, which I also would have done on a recorder, which is considerably less sexy. But anyway, so yeah, it just it depends. Like I'd probably charge more for my stories than another person would because I think my engagement's decent. And I'm a more I'm a stories based account. I, I you know, this is why it, this is why, like, I think go, likes going away and stuff. I don't know. It's just I want people to be able to post the content they want when they want that aligns with them. And but it's hard because like what figure what works with a static post, because figuring that out, I mean, because if you're charging for your following and like the potential of people to see it. Yet the efficacy or performance is, you know, yeah, it's going to be gauged potentially through conversion, but a static post is a little weird because it's a Lincoln bio vibe. It's not a direct swipe up, which anytime there's click burden, it's more of a problem in terms of getting people down that funnel. Uh, but also not knowing how the likes and comments are going to populate. It sucks to charge somebody for your following, but then like get low engagement. You probably notice like bloggers comment on other bloggers sponsored content like quickly and positively and nicely and i think that's like kind of it's not like a comment pod or anything strategic so much as it is like in solidarity because it's awkward when you have spawn con and like it's not really getting picked up and you want it to drive value for the advertiser and so often people engage with it in a passive manner that maybe don't interact with it directly and then you're not getting any credit for that so i think if you want to support people a way you can do that is to engage with their sponsored content as silly as that sounds it honestly does make a difference and especially don't if you like that person and the the value they bring to you don't like not interact with SpawnCon on purpose it kind of i don't know i think it's important that if somebody's genuinely bringing something to the table that you like and is adding something to your life to um support them when they do attempt to monetize because that's really the only thing they're getting out of all of the work they're putting into trying to provide something of value otherwise i don't i don't do like i i not that i won't i just to this point it hasn't been my priority to do brand partnerships and everything's like barter based like rent the runway will give me free clothing slots in exchange if like people 
sign up for it. Or like Wink has given me free wine a couple of times and that's an affiliate model too. I mean, I like getting sent free shit and getting invited to events. I have a pulse, but um, I only like will show it if I really like it. You know, I have standards. <laughs> I'm trying to think of anything else. It's influencery that I do. I don't know if somebody like, sends me a glass of wine at a restaurant, I'll throw the I'll, like post about it, but I'm not going to be like, thank you for the free glass of mid-range Merlot at Olive Garden. And that never happened, but that would be awesome. Anyways, we'll get more into that stuff later. Well, so I was talking about podcasting. Oh, I was talking about how 20,000 doesn't seem high. But when I saw that slide for podcasts, it made sense because it's very hard to gauge like where you stand. Because, uh, you know, the Joe Rogans of the world get millions of downloads. I mean, podcasts that are huge, like girls got to eat, like they're just like far above and beyond that level. But um, so the way it works, a bunch of you guys asked about this. And I'm not like I again, I do this independently. I'm self-taught. I've not through like this podcast is like a lot of been a lot of like manual labor and learning on my behalf. And I sure this isn't accurate to everybody else's experience, but I can just at least tell you mine. I'm sure there's plenty of people making way more, making way less, not that have brokers that do this. So they have no idea even what even goes into the process. Who the hell knows? But I'll just tell you what I know because I never hear anybody talk about it. And I think it's kind of weird. And there's nothing like that secretive about it. It's a very straightforward business model. So to pick a random number, um, let's just use the 20,000 as the number of downloads. And to explain CPMs, if I haven't already, it's again, cost per thousand, which I know is confusing because it's not CPT, it's a CPM. Um, You'll set a number that you want to be paid per thousand people that download the episode and say in advance that you expect, you know, X number of people to download this episode within the first 45 days and you times that by your cost per thousand. So if I were to have expecting a thousand downloads and let's just say like a, I said a $40 CPM, that's just a random number. There's a huge range. Um, that you could negotiate depending on your agreement. I can't tell you exactly the nature of any of mine, A, because I'm in a contract, B, some are a year, some are one-time test, some are products I've proven I can sell, that I have leverage, uh, some are for different types of ads. There's so many variations depending on like uh, pre-roll or mid-roll or duration or, you know, an ad network probably bulk negotiates them and it's not, it's more like show agnostic. So there's really no one true way this is done. But in my experience and in alignment with what I know about uh, television, given my background, uh, it's a pretty straightforward CPM sitch. So let's say like $40 is what I want for every thousand people that download this podcast. That means for every thousand, I would ask for $40. Every 10,000, I would ask for $400. Every 20,000, I would ask for $800. At a point, you check in, make sure you met the guaranteed number of downloads. If you don't, you have to make good on it in some way. TV advertising is the same way. Um, And or if I ever say the if you ever like hear me do an uncharacteristic amount of ads in an episode, it's likely because I said the script wrong and therefore I owe them another ad. There's there's a lot of different things that go into it. But like, okay, even just to do some quick math, I don't do three uh, ads an episode. But if if I did um, and if I wanted 40 per thousand people and let's just say i guaranteed twenty thousand um let's do math okay so like that would be 800 an ad times three which is 2400 an episode and then let's take there's going to be that that's that would be like the gross value but the net let's take off a percentage 
for um there's always going to be fees depending on who you're working with so i took off like let's just take off 15 percent, and uh that because like a lot of the the people that procure the ads they they'll take a cut to negotiate it for you with i I very rarely work with the advertiser directly um okay so that would be two thousand ish two thousand forty dollars uh per episode if you do that once a week times four is eighty one sixty then that's a month and then times twelve is ninety seven thousand nine hundred twenty dollars so even taking out like you know the cut another third party would get and whatnot if you had like on the low end of what's considered to be a top podcast download number and did three ads a week and did an episode weekly and that's like a best case scenario ads fall through economic times are hard whatever but like just to highlight that person would be making you know ninety eight thousand dollars a year on their once a week podcast um so and i say that to kind of showcase that you if you stick with it you won't make money for a long time but if you can get to a certain level of consistency where advertisers are willing to put money behind you depending on how many you want to do and what you negotiate you can make a decent salary off of podcasting alone most people have this as ancillary income um i have a bunch of different things i do to make money the two biggest income sources being podcasting and doing consulting and like copywriting and kind of under the radar branding stuff that i do for people that reach out independently it's all over the place it's like an apparel manufacturer out of michigan a charcuterie company in north carolina i've worked on a national uh manufacturer of like gifting type items i i don't know it's kind of like it's a combo of word of mouth uh people that like follow me and are familiar with my writing style and also i used to do a ton of like ad hoc consulting for handmade businesses and i keep in touch with a lot of them and like i just have the most random expertise that's not super easily definable in like a broader agency capacity so it's just yeah it's it's just random and um like i'll help people streamline their etsy shops figure out if they need to hire uh, employees or outsource it to a different manufacturer i'll help them source it i kind of help with the supply chain overall figure out how to scale a handmade business which is an oxymoron but if, at least with my business back in the day i figured out a way to make it work and uh, yeah, so stuff like that, that's kind of operational based on my mad experience and also kind of just other marketing, uh, writing, wordsmithing type stuff related to like my skill set as a writer. Um, I've been approached to ghostwrite stuff like I don't know, it's kind of weird. And also why I'd argue that Instagram is such a powerful tool because a it's not like you advertise this stuff because like I'm writing on behalf of brands or people. So it's not like. I don't know. It's not like a normal portfolio thing and be as much as I can sustain it with just kind of like behind the scenes. It's I like it better that way. Um, I think a lot more people kind of do private consulting than maybe people even realize. And yeah, it's just kind of random. So and obviously I wrote a book and I get like royalties from that. And then any books going forward, I get in advance Um and uh a bunch of other things i'm working on that not to be like secret project about but like i can't it's just like you, it's it's the nature of life you can't talk about count your eggs before they hatch or talk about things before they come to fruition and um when they don't that just seems like they don't exist and you probably think people aren't working but i think a lot of people in this weird freelancey space i'm in or like kind of the weird like the business of your personality it's it's just a little all over the place but you make it work and i've definitely been able to in the past year or so in a way that i could back off the mats and 
figure that out and kind of hit pause that I wasn't able to before. So that was kind of a big thing when Etsy made all those changes and they weren't prioritizing an SEO uh, shops that didn't. um, They started only prioritizing shops that offered free shipping. Mats cost minimum 10, 12 bucks to ship. I couldn't do that without hugely cutting into my margin. I pushed back. I was frustrated. It's just not the best place for it anymore. And also it was never, it's not something that I'm like, it's intellectual property. I own a product I'm proud of, but it's not my focal point. And I scaled down all of the wholesale because I didn't, you have to be buying in economies of like to get economies of scale and the quantities you have to buy in are so insane that I'd have to be running this like huge operation. I just didn't want to be running anymore. You can listen to all about that in my, like how I built this in other episodes, but, uh, I still want to sell all that stuff. I just am in the process of figuring out a licensing and outsourced model that works better. Cause the past full, I've had fulfillment nightmares over the past couple years um and i'd rather just not sell them at all than have to mitigate difficult customer interactions because i'm not happy with the people i'm working with so yeah anyway in the interest of transparency that is definitely an faq and one that was on the spreadsheet so many times and honestly i get it like i i think that the nature of my jobs is strange and um like I'd be lying if i said there weren't very difficult periods of time financially but i'm in a dual income household uh, which is a huge privilege. And even if my business tanks, well, it would not be great for my family. I would have a roof over my head, you know? So I can't deny that at all. But um, I've definitely taken financial setbacks in exchange for taking some risks that I feel like are just now starting to pay off. Uh, so stay tuned. I'm not trying to be mysterious so much as I just am not trying to like say things that won't happen, then you follow up with them, and then I have to like disappoint you. You know, anyway, okay. Um, another popular question is about Courtney's role. Uh, Courtney is my, I call her my Chris Jenner, my friend is her. She manages me. Um, and what that means is she helps with like the day to day and the execution and she negotiates the ads, gets me the scripts, uh, does like my schedule, does all of the outreach and pitching. She invoices them, follows up with them, make sure they pay. Like, it's just, it's all this, like, minutiae that I'm god-awful at. She manages so seamlessly and amazingly. And she also comes with me to live shows and negotiates with the venues, make sure that, like, the setup is the way that I need it, make sure, like, all the things. It's, like, so much minutiae with, like, sound. And there's just so many little things. Like, if I need somebody to, like, do my makeup, if I need to plan an after party, if, like, there's, there it's a weird thing where like I can't even express how much I grew just e- having the support like without a co-host and in just in general being a person that like I think I'm fine but I don't think I'm all that great like you know what I'm not I'm not like walking around town like pitching myself trying to like do all these things I really did need like a partner to sell me for me um to stream like kind of fill in all the things that I'm bad at I'm really really bad at anything like uh kind of admin related clerical detail based email related like it's it's i see why people work with people because it's hard to like maintain like a level of creativity when you're really mired in the weeds and i met courtney because she reached out to me on instagram and i said like i need help i was kind of jokingly looking for a chris jenner but i wasn't really joking i got a ton of emails and hers was super specific it she told me exactly like why she liked me why she liked the podcast how she found me what she could do for me she just got it she liked all the same shows i did the same stuff and the biggest lesson i've learned in business is to work with people that believe in your mission and that won't trivialize it or make it feel small or dismiss it i worked with so many people that thought the mats were stupid and then i would start to feel like they were stupid or feel like i had to apologize or 
you know, it's like I, the, the, the my wins weren't as interesting and I felt embarrassed about stuff and like tiptoed around, you know, what I was excited about. Because if other people don't think it's important or exciting, you won't either. But life is hard enough. And if without celebrating little moments and without acknowledging small wins and having people that are excited when something happens that aligns with your goals, it's like, it's everything. I can't emphasize that enough. Like, it's something I excused that I was like, they'll get into it or whatever. Maybe it's better to be objective. But like, no. I knew Courtney was the one for me when, well, from the get-go, because she's so, um, she's thorough and professional and supportive and wonderful, but also willing to, like, learn and figure stuff out with me and isn't condescending, but also, like, she just has my same interests, and I know that's not always a thing you can find, but, like, when we were in LA recording a bunch of podcasts, and, like, this is a small example, but I always go back to it, and... We, you know, like if you're a Bravo super fan, like going to Sir, eating the goat cheese balls, having a spicy mark, going to Tom Tom, seeing the cast, seeing the boom mics, watching the sausage get made, being inside the machine is an exciting experience for a Bravo super fan. And if I had been there doing that with somebody that doesn't really care about TV or watch TV or is too cool for reality shows or whatever, they would have been like, where are we? This restaurant blows because like Sir's food isn't that good. But she like the whole time she kept looking at me be like, this is the best night of my life. Like we, we, were, we were both like, this is the best like we, we were freaking out and doing something so objectively silly, but we were both so into it that it made it so much more special. And it's like one of the best memories I have in recent years of just doing something that like is so aligned with what I what, what I love doing that I don't really have many friends who would care about that. And um, I just I'm getting off on a tangent. I can't emphasize enough not only the importance of working people that are champions of you and believe in your potential, but also champions of your industry as a whole. I think that it's so easy to get disinterested, disenchanted to kind of disengage overall when you're not really a part of both things both the person and the actual job at hand and to, she's a person that like loves podcasts loves everything in this ethos we've and yeah she's just like really good at what she does she makes my life so much easier and i'm so so grateful like she changed everything um and another question people ask god is does she work with other podcasters and yes she does she didn't used to, but now she does. I don't know if people are asking that because they need representation or um, you just are curious. But yeah, I mean, I couldn't ever refer her enough, even it cut into if it cut into her time with me. She's awesome. But yeah, she does work with other podcasters. I think even her contact, like if you try to contact me on Instagram, I think it goes straight to her because also I'm a monster and I'm disorganized and I get too many emails and she tells me when I need to respond and I love her for that. I'm basically I'm an infant. Uh and then while I'm getting out some of these questions out of the way. Oh, and in terms of other representation, like do, do influencers work with managers, agents, blah, blah, blah. I can't speak for everyone. I know some people work with independent managers like Courtney's an independent manager of mine. I know Grace has an independent manager that works with several bloggers. Um, some people are with like DBA, digital brand architects, which I think is kind of like a the more elite the offshoot of a talent agency that like pursues specifically influencers and represents talent. I think like they're with Rachel Parcell and I think Ariel and I don't know, bigger, bigger names. There's one called Estate Five that I follow on Instagram. I know they manage Kathleen Barnes, who I think is awesome. She's like, she's, she's like a grace. Like people just unanimously love her. She is wonderful and so, so beautiful. And I, I really appreciate her. And um, another person that I mentioned the last episode, Melissa Fit uh they're they're the way they convey motherhood because sometimes i get really anxious when i see people that i can't at all relate to and i just think they're two people melissa's like very positive and ethereal and angelic and just like a nice person and i think kathleen's very realistic about the whole thing and um just like provided a, a depiction that didn't feel like 
she felt like she had to say all these things about being a mom. You know what I mean? I don't know. That's a whole different tangent. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of different avenues of people that can negotiate stuff for you. Um, there's a difference between managers and agents. I used to be totally solo. Then I was then I had a manager to help me like run stuff, but was a free agent. And now very recently I signed on with William Morris, who represents me in like literally everything, podcast touring, books, digital, whatever. Um, and they're awesome. And I am so lucky to be working with them. So that's a very uh very cool and exciting career development that I'm just very casually dropping in the middle of this podcast. Hope you're still listening. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I definitely, that's another thing too. It's like, I have one foot in, one foot out of what I'd argue the traditional, like in like bloggery, um, you know, product talking Instagrammer, but I actively did make a decision to pivot uh, my persona away from like the mats and the be there in five business and more into being like a personality. And I wanted to do more podcast type stuff, pop culture commentary. I wanted to write books. I wanted it to be more about like the things I, I think I guess a distinguisher to is with bloggers, influencers, a lot of them, they're monetizing themselves and their life, what they wear, their home, their family, what they eat, where they shop, all that stuff. It's all about like the um, making of themselves into a product. And the I guess the big biggest difference is like, that's not what I ever see for myself. That's not what I ever see being like a primary revenue driver is like me recommending and advertising for products and brands, even though like I, I'll do some of it. For sure. Like, I don't know. I'm still waiting for Arby's to call me, but it's just not like my primary goal in life is to like sell and endorse uh, products. I do it as like supporting income as ancillary income because I've spent two and a half years trying to like build people's trust and build a community. And like, that's worth something. And like, I'm not a bad business person. Like, I see the value in it. I just never wanted to lead with that because I wanted you to know like my intentions were elsewhere and that I don't see you just as a monetizable pair of eyeballs, but rather. I wanted to do everything in my power to add value to your life first before I ever felt the right to make money off of you. I'll talk more about this on Patreon later, but another FAQ is like, what do you want out of all of this? Like, are you trying to like be a star? Like, do you want it? Like, do you want to be an influencer? Like, what's your end goal? And like, I'd be lying if I had a super straightforward one, but I don't know if you want to know my career aspirations. I want to be known for like what I have to say, what I've written, the things I talk about, but like, I don't want to be the product. Does that make sense? Like, I don't want people that interested in my life because I don't really as a person, I'm not like a tastemaker, a curator. I don't really have much to offer like in my personal life. I kind of live like a very normal person and want to live like a normal person, uh, but a normal person that has like thoughts, words, books and things that are like well known. Does that make sense? I feel douchey. I just I don't know. I, I feel like that's the one thing people aren't clear on, like what I'm trying to do with my life. And I don't know if I could be like, a I don't know a Liz Gilbert, a Brene Brown. Hell, like even the Foster sisters, they like write TV shows. They do some ads. They uh, are creative directors for Bumble. They like dabble in investments. Like I kind of want a career like that. Like it's mostly about the words and the things I do. You can be a little interested in my life if you care, but it's not really this the focal point, <laughs> if that makes sense at all. I think that's why too, I, I want to defend influencers a lot of the time because I don't think everybody starts out with this like plot for world domination. I think that most people like, you know, they're probably confident, but they feel average. And when they do something that works, they follow it and then it, it grows. They follow it and then they change and their life changes. Their priori priorities change. And I think that like 
a lot of influencers are in a position that maybe like they really just didn't ever picture themselves being a remotely close to a public figure, but now they are one. And it's like, we have to adjust and you have to be grateful, but it's, it also is like a, a thing of, would you not do the same? I, you know, I, everybody who's like gotten so big that I could say something like kind of snarky or resentful about, uh, or, you know, invalidate their career. I'm like, well, if I got famous or big or rich that way, would I push back? Would I stop the train? Like, no, we'd all be like, choo, choo, bitches. Like, let's keep this going. If I'm making money, if I'm, you know, raising my profile, if I'm having opportunities that would never be afforded to me otherwise, we should all be pushing forward and we should all be leveraging whatever opportunities are presented to us as the result of our own hard work. I actually have a newsletter article I wrote about this that I've never not sent out because I just don't know how to, I don't know, whatever. I'm struggling figuring out my place in this climate we're in. But I like, honestly, when I really think about it, the only thing that makes me different than anybody else at this point in time is I have a tolerance to outside input and I have a tolerance to ambiguity that I think makes so many people argue for their limitations that they never start anything. But I'll start anything. I'm not embarrassed. I have a, like enough of a track record where I've seen the fruits of my labor. And there's a million reasons you can talk yourself out of anything on any given day. But I just don't. I just do it. And everything I've ever done in my career is objectively embarrassing. But it's all worked out because I did it anyway. And it kills me thinking of all the people that would crush all these things if they did it anyway. But they let, you know, an isolated opinion or two or one bad experience or not being good at first act like it's a way to gauge their potential overall when it's just not the case you you, people just give up so quickly and care what it looks like and i just i think what be there in five the map business taught me is just it doesn't matter if it looks stupid it doesn't matter if nobody gets it. it doesn't matter if you don't know what you're doing you have no permission you have no degree you have no money no time no whatever like all you need in life is the will to figure shit out and you're fine and you don't need all these pre-existing qualifications you and the world is going to tell you you need. I, I just think we have, we're so much more capable than we give ourselves credit for and that even the world wants us to know. Because if we figured that out, we'd pay for a bunch of shit that coaches us to be great when really I think we're already pretty great. And I don't know, I'm rambling now, but I guess all that to say, like, I'm all for people following where they find success, even if it's where it's unexpected. And I think that a lot of times people don't even know they're going to be in these spots and we can't make fun of them or their intentions or assume they're part of some diabolical plan when I think a lot of people are just like following their compass and it's fine. And like, I do want to be a person that lets women exist. And I don't think we do that very well as a society. And I think we nitpick everybody's individual move and boil people down to these one dimensional characters that they're just not. And I think that I struggle because I feel like People aren't satisfied when I can't provide a more one-dimensional take on, like, what I want out of my life and career. And some days I'm not either. But, I don't know, I guess just an argument to let people explore, yourself included. And even if somebody doesn't make sense doing something, let them do it anyway. And um, I I don't know. I just, it's, reading the questions was just really interesting about, like, I don't, I guess I didn't really know that. I, I I very admittedly am like, yeah, I know I do a lot of different things. I'm just trying to figure it out. But I didn't maybe realize how much people like really wanted to understand, like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> like, where does this where is this going? What is this for? And I just think that like some jobs of five and 10 year plans, some people have ladders, other people have jungle gyms. And I'll follow it until it stops working and see where it takes me. But I promise to be honest with you about it. And 
a lot of people that like want to be like nor like you know celebrities famous people they're like these enigmas that follow this formula of like how to toe the line and make people interested in them but like that's not again like i i I want you to care about what i say i don't need you to like care that much about me as a person and i don't really have a strategy here other than to just like share with people how unusual it is for like a normal person to experience this and how this is not what i expected for my life and i don't even know what it is or if it's anything but it's cool to have representation it's cool that people are willing to hedge their bets and try to develop business for me and think i could do more with my career i'm freaking honored and I'm just lucky to have found people that align with like who I am and get what I want, even if I don't always get it. And they've kind of reassured me that anymore, that's the name of the game is try a lot of stuff, see what sticks, see where you can make the most money, add the most value and reach the most people and do more of it. And it's as simple as that. <laughs> so I hope that was helpful. I feel like that was really annoying. Um, but I don't know, I'm sure you're like relaxed, Tony Robbins. I, I don't try to get into these like motivational spiels and I don't want to seem Rachel Hollissey. I don't actually think I have this kind of um, <laughs> influence over people. And I use Brene Brown as an example because I love her and I love what she stands for. Um, but I also, it's like she has a PhD, she's a professor. She's actually like licensed and able to help people. I'm just speaking from my own anecdotal experience. So take from it what you will. I don't know. Sometimes I think of like prior versions of myself that were like really stuck or down and out or didn't like where I was or thought that I just had this finite set of restrictions on my life based on how I designed it and, um, you know, thought there was too many sunk costs to ever change or do anything else. And like, I, I it fear it, I, I, it pains me to think like if there's a version of you out there that's that right now and you're talk, talking yourself into all the things you can't do how you don't have to quit your job. You don't have to put sink money into it. You don't need to know people, but with like research and effort and like the will to figure stuff out, you can do amazing things. And like, I just think back to what if I had talked myself out of every, all of this that have given me a career that's way, way more interesting than anything I could have planned because I didn't know I was capable of any of it because you don't know your capability unless you try things. And I just want people to make sure that they're not writing fiction about the things they can and can't do, but rather letting actual data, actual experience dictate the way they make their decisions and not projections from other people, not other people's input, but real actual effort and experience, and then make the call, then decide if it's for you, then decide if you're right for it, if you'll be successful, whatever. I want women, young women, I want people running this world. I want to close the gap. I want more people in executive positions. I want more people starting companies. I want more people not robbing the world of their gifts. And I think that sometimes I, I just like get overwhelmed thinking that I have access to a lot of ears. And like, you know, here I am talking about Instagram. But you know, as much as I can pepper in these moments of just like, I just want to reassure people. I, I wish more people were had champions or felt like they could open up to people. But I know a lot of times when I'm suffering, I distance myself from people because I don't want to have to talk about it. I don't want to have to drag them into it and have them follow up with me. And I don't know. I just like a lot of people say it's sometimes they're like in, so in isolation. I'm the only person they're like hearing from that day. And like if I I don't know, it makes me emotional to talk about when you guys write me about these things. And like, I don't know. I know I don't know you personally, but I feel like I do. You know, a lot of times people tell me they feel like we're friends and we are like, you know, more about me than like my husband doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> um, so anyway, moving on little tangent. I'll kind of elaborate too later on like I've, as I talked about my, my millennial old episode and like I'll go through periods of time where I have like mini epiphanies where I feel good about something. I feel like I've learned something and I feel like I want to share something not to tell my own accomplishments or like I'm so wise, but rather in the event somebody else is going through something similar just to provide that element of reassurance that when we have hyper specific careers and dreams that not everybody around us understands, sometimes it's helpful to hear it from somebody else. And I just I like I, I can't emphasize enough. I spent so much of my life 
thinking I knew who I was and I understood my personality. But looking back, I realized it was a function of my environment that I kind of had to uh, I kind of had to shed myself from like I kind of had to lose context that was being provided to me by people and places. And, you know, like I just think so many things tell us who we are and then we believe it and we think we can't operate outside of this like definition of ourselves that we've established based on what we've done. But who we are today is based on what we've done. But who you are tomorrow and going forward and the person you want to become is based on the stuff you're doing today. It's not based on the stuff you'll do then. It, it takes time and it takes patience. And if there's any part of you that wants to evolve or be something else or do something else or find something that brings you more joy in your life, you know, on the side, uh, just like start. It's all you, you just have to start. And like it's like writing a paper. Once you start, it's not so bad. It's the dreading of starting that, you know, is half the battle. OK, so I'll stop now. Moving on to affiliate income. So exciting. Swipe up your life. So affiliate links. It's This is good old-fashioned commission. This is not, nothing that deep or serious. And another thing I think we should go easy on to a degree, though I will always argue for balance I, and transparency. I freaking hate when people put ad in like the bottom corner. It's like so stupid and transparent. Like, just stop. I, it, it, an ad's an ad. It's like you're not fooling anybody. Again, nobody uses Olay. I don't know why people are trying to come I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know a lot of uh, wonderful bloggers are sponsored by them. But just like, I don't know. I just feel like in, in, the, in the realm of skincare routines, I just like don't know people in real life that use it. And I'm sorry for that. But yes, it's pretty standard. So if you direct someone to a retailer or a good or service or something that they're going to pay for that they wouldn't have gone to otherwise without your referral, you should get a cut of that purchase. Pretty straightforward. What it boils down to more often than not is like, okay, well, what are the commission rates? Who gives more commission? Do you strategically select only products with high commission at certain retailers? Do you know what I mean? It's like, this is what I was talking about earlier, where it's inevitably murky, the, the you know, capitalism versus personal recommendation of it all. You look like a person who's just like sharing what you already bought. But are you? We don't know. You could be being pretty strategic about it. And that's kind of what I was pointing out with my Warby Parker glasses. I had on I had contacts in. I just threw them on and um, was going to see if anybody asked me about them. So then I could show you the full like life cycle of, a. you know, everybody's asking me about my ex routine. But I strategically put on the glasses. I then saw that they were like twelve or thirteen dollars commission. And then when I'm like, oh, a few of you guys have asked me about this, which I would do normally if a lot of people ask me about it to avoid the back and forth. But then, you know, I would get a cut of anybody who bought those glasses despite having planted them myself. You know, it's a game. Illegal about doing that. It's just like good to keep in mind, you know. The two main um, affiliate networks are reward style, which is when you see the hashtag like to know it and the like to know it app. That is part of reward style. That is hard to get into. It's like follower count and quality. And like, I don't know, there's there's an application process that I think you like have to get accepted. I'm not part of reward style, though. I don't think I've applied. I don't really remember if I'm honest. Reward style kind of pioneered this. They're brilliant. They saw that there's value in how bloggers and influencers were um, generating major traffic toward retailers and the like and built a business model around it. And the like to know it hashtag was born of that company. There's also an app where people have pages and they link, they, they organize absolutely everything that they house, um, or sorry, they house everything that they share on the app. Uh, so you don't have to like constantly be asking or searching for links. I'd argue, I don't know, it's funny because I don't, I've never downloaded the app. I don't actually go to people's like to know what pages, not because I don't want to give them affiliate revenue, but because 
I'm more likely to swipe up something in real time than go to somebody as like a tastemaker, like buy a bunch of stuff. I don't really know how to explain it. But anyway, so that is one way. So if you want to share something on your blog or Instagram, it's a particular thing you've bought. You search for it on the app, on reward style or on shop style. They populate your uh, custom URL. And depending on a variety of factors, um, you know, depending on cookies and in session and length of session, whatever. The, there's an ability to get a cut of the sale uh, based on your URL. Amazon is the most annoying one of this because we all know the phantom cart. You, has to, you have to buy it in session, which means you have to log into your Amazon within the Instagram app, which is just a pain in the ass. And I'm always adding stuff to a phantom cart that I never see again. So if anything, people are probably getting underpaid relative to their, the amount they reference because people are going to go later or outside the app or whatever. But um, definitely reward style and shop style are better about like the terms of the session and the cookies and whatever. These are things I don't need to get into uh, and that I can't even articulate well. But it depends the amount of commission you get on a particular product. It doesn't depend on shop style or reward style, but rather it depends on the commission they've negotiated with each individual retailer that participates in these two programs. You can make bank if people are buying your stuff high price point, really trust you very consistently able to drive traffic back to your site and have people buy not only clothes that are linkable but clothes that are consistently available and in stock because you're going to go through all this effort to like pin and uh promote and put these outfits together make a capsule collection whatever it is uh you know there's it makes sense that the motivation isn't going to be to go to tj maxx and and get a bunch of stuff you can't link and people can't find and you have to think of that two ways it's not that they're manipulative in terms of just wanting to make a buck off their choices but it's kind of unfair to the consumer if they're advertising and styling with pieces that the consumer can't get so there's a balance there of okay you know that's why people probably love uh, the end sale they, they have brands that are widely available that will probably be available next season and if you spend a lot of work building out or styling something it doesn't have a shelf life of you know the one month that fast fashion has a certain piece in stock. I think it makes like, obviously, you're going to wear parts of your own wardrobe that aren't linkable. But people get annoyed when you swipe up to something that, that when you wear something and you link to something that's not the thing you're wearing. But to be real, you would act like any normal person, you wear things that aren't new. But I just think that's a thing to keep in mind when we're thinking about how influencers like dress and always having new stuff and the consumerism and the materialistic nature of it all. It is kind of gross, but it does make sense in terms of how annoying it would be to be a style blogger and never be able to link to the clothes you wear. Uh, for me, as it relates to affiliate income, so you guys are going to laugh. Uh, I didn't mean to tease this because it was going to be substantive. I teased it because I think the point is like, the amount you can make as like even a casual user of affiliate links, it's like, it's not that big. And it's probably, you probably think it's like bigger and I could be using it more often. And I've definitely made more this year, but like, it's just, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm amazed that people are able to, I, I think I, I get how you can make bank, but to do that consistently is so interesting because the things that I think are going to, people will buy from me they never do and the things that are make no sense people are all over and um i don't know it's just it's funny but yeah if this is the only way if, if aside from like being gifted stuff stuff for barter 
um, the only way I've ever like made money off Instagram. And I know I said this earlier, but like, again, my like life's goal, life's work, it's not to sell products, to curate, to taste, to make, to make recommendations. It's ancillary. I do it when I mean it. I don't live off of this at all. I literally can't once you hear the amount. And um, I that's also why like I feel a little bit more comfortable talking about influencers because I feel like the traditional ways in which they make money, I just don't. It's just not, uh, it hasn't been a priority up until this point. Not to say I wouldn't do it more going forward, but as of now, it's just like not really what I'm going for. And um, so my purview is limited. Uh, I just, I don't know. I want to be able to like freely talk about it. And I do feel like when I enter into that territory where I become the person that's too similar to the people I'm talking about, I kind of lose credibility and inevitably my arguments would get uh, more biased in a way that's kind of not fair. So I view my social media presence as an ancillary activity that supports revenue generating projects, but it doesn't generate meaningful revenue for me directly. And I think that's an important distinction. Um, And I say meaningful revenue because I do use affiliate links because I'd be a bad business person not to. I love the conversion data, but the money is just really for the amount I do it. It's just not there, but it's great side spending money. I'm not complaining. Um, And I definitely more like this year than last year. In the interest of full disclosure, in 2019, on Amazon Associates, I made $810 total from swipe ups. That's the cut I got from generating them $16,400 in sales at a conversion rate of 5%. Um, but like shop style, which is comparable to like to know it, it's predominantly fashion. My conversion rate conversion rate is much lower because I'm not as influential in these categories, but it's, I don't know. It's kind of tricky on Amazon. I sold a bunch of stuff, but like not huge amounts of it, but shop style, I made $832. Please no tagging. I'll get kicked off the platform. I'm just trying to, <laughs> trying to be honest. And by the way, this is not a proxy for how much bloggers make off affiliate income. Um, they make serious money and do swipe ups a lot more than I do. That $832 off of shop style is solely from a gold jorts, first aid, beauty, keratosis, Polaris scrub and IGK charcoal dry shampoo. <laughs> um, because those are three product tales I will die on. Uh, and I talk about all the time cause I genuinely love them. Uh, so, and I spent, you know, a solid chunk of that 832 on more jorts. So there you go. Not, a, it bores me. And I'm not good at it. And I don't think you should take, I don't buy a lot of stuff either. Um, I'm just like not, I think you kind of have to be a super consumer to even have that role. But anyway, beside the point, I'm telling you these numbers because it kind of helps me explain why I don't identify as an influencer, but also like, uh, that's probably me posting a swipe up once or twice a week with anywhere from 25 to, I don't know, 45,000 followers that I had last year. So it's like a casual person making a little affiliate income on the side. It's like some side spending money, but it's not that serious. And I don't focus a lot on it. I think the place where people make the big bucks isn't just off Instagram swipe ups, but is off of um, blogs, consistent links and uh, ways that people are going back to those at all times. Um, It makes them live in a more permanent way than or in a more user friendly way than an Instagram uh, link or Instagram highlight does. And um, like I know bloggers who make their entire income off of affiliate links alone because they're really excellent curators and people constantly go to them for pieces. And that makes sense. It's kind of like a magazine or anywhere whose taste you would trust that kind of define their picks for, you know, whatever they're liking at that time. And a lot of people use that guidance to drive their purchase decisions. It makes total sense. But what matters more than the amount you make is your the conversion data. So like. Amazon stuff I share, I'm kind of selective, but 
5% of people buy it, which is awesome. But the more you share, that goes down. You know what I mean? It's like, I think there is an uh, element of uh, being selective. The thing I think you guys have bought most of this year, I've done better this year, is this pair of ear cuffs that I wear all the time, like every day. I always have a million earrings up and down my ears, but I don't have any piercings because that episode of Full House where Stephanie got her ears infected because she got her ears pierced, I think, at the mall with Gia. I don't like to play fast and loose with underqualified 18-year-olds with needle guns. And, um, you know, that episode of Full House made me, like, hyper aware of ear infections in a way that I think isn't really relevant or helpful as an adult. But do you remember it was the one time that Stephanie, like, pushed back her bang? She had, like, on a headband and maybe some sort of Western fringe. The whole episode was triggering. Okay, so this year. Okay, so just based off people swiping up from my Instagram, am I going to get kicked off these? Is this, like, weird intel? This is what I don't get is that you know exactly how much commission, like, a realtor is getting. You know, it just it's pretty straightforward in a lot of other industries, but something about influence or anything is super not straightforward. Um, so. OK, so off of my Insta stories alone. In 2020, I've earned Amazon thirty one thousand dollars. Like, I don't know, it's a six point three percent conversion. Like I, I like if you wouldn't have gone and bought something otherwise, I think it's fair that I deserve a portion of that. It's pretty, it's nothing that crazy though. This is um, like $1,400. What's that? What's that percentage wise? Like four or 5%. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, I just think logically we, it makes sense that you'd take a fee for a referral and it's like, yeah, I could have you swipe up out of the goodness of my own heart, but also that does not a business person make. Did you guys see last week when Carly said she's generated it was like three quarters of a million dollars in J. Crew for sales from one person. That's a lot. That's wild. So like, yeah, you know, this year I'll probably generate a hundred grand for Amazon. Maybe like this is why I'm a micro influencer. Do I put a lot of my time and effort behind it? No. Do I want to? I don't really know either because then it becomes this whole like strategy thing. And like, I don't even like that much stuff. I'd be like things period, I period, bought period and period returned because I don't return stuff I use, but like I usually get it and I'm like, this isn't that great. And then I return it. Uh, so, you know, so much stuff, like especially clothing and stuff on Amazon always looks so much nicer than it actually is. And, you know, I like in recent years being self-employed, like I just don't have the disposable income I once did. So maybe that would affect my purchase behavior. But I'm just like pretty. I don't know. I don't I think I just am amazed at how much money people like to spend on random stuff. That I would, I don't know, I just like feel like I put a lot of thought into. Like I'll spend, I'll drop serious cash on like a dinner or experience. But like I don't, I don't really like or own or need that much stuff. I mean, I have a lot of stuff, but like I almost resent it. And I, if anything, I want a condo in my life um, and just donate a bunch of stuff. Because I feel the older I get, the more irritated I am by things. And the more disgusted I am by people that overvalue them. And this is a recent change I've felt about myself in like the past two years. But combo for a different day. Um, another interesting thing that happened last week that I was going to elaborate on, because I said I would, is uh, per the Carly J. Crew comment, she had a very healthy approach to responding to uh, them filing Chapter 11, no longer doing affiliate links, say, like if she'd still share their clothing and whatnot. And there was like a brief controversy that I talked about on my Instagram with um, sassy red lipstick and how she responded. And I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on that, but now I feel like it's kind of old news. Um, I'll, I'm going to put my spiel on that in the Patreon episode, not to like withhold her, put it behind a paywall, but like she did DM me and I think she unsent it and I have thoughts on it, but like, I just don't even, I don't know, we're at two hours and I have other questions I want to get to. Um, but the gist of it was like, if 
she basically said, like, it's not worth my time to do this J. Crew haul, I promise, because I'm no longer making commission off of it and I can't spend time on things that aren't revenue generating, which is a very fair thing to say. It just isn't the most um, tactful thing to say to people whose investment on anything that you present to them it really hinges on the trust of your recommendation. And now you just basically told them that you only do things if it makes you money. But yeah, in general, I, if, if, with any. With any relationship-centric business, which is what having, you know, being an influencer and having followers is, you know, they're essentially your clients. And there's a certain finesse and a certain balance of, of sales and marketing tactics that require, you know, while maybe not the most straightforward thing, there's like an element of EQ and tact that goes into how you explain your job to somebody. And a realtor isn't like, don't waste my time. If I don't get commission, I'm not going to show you these homes. And I think when you treat your followers in such a transactional manner, it's it's a shame and it, it's a loss of trust. And I get that you're a working mom and I want you to make money. I want every, all the women to make all the money. And it's never about money. It's never about me thinking you should be coy or disarming about your intentions to make it. But rather, I think it's just it's naive to think that being blunt and honest is going to overrule a tale as old of time in terms of people needing to incorporate a lot of soft skills and a lot of ancillary non-revenue generating activities in order to build a trust and relationship that actually ultimately generates you income because you've spent so much time and invested so much time and established a level of trust where the client then thinks you have their best interest in mind. That sort of trust doesn't just come with assumption because they follow you, you have to earn it. And I think that that type of behavior is extremely off-putting and it's not like the right w way to go. Also, a <laughs> um, somebody wrote in my survey and I think sent me an email that they're like frustrated because they're busy and I don't always explain every story. Uh, so if you didn't know what I was talking about, Sassy Red Lipstick or anybody, I do apologize. The problem is largely I need to speak to the majority and the majority of people are that I'm speaking to are kind of like do stay in tuned in touch with this sort of stuff. And so my priority becomes less about recapping and more about commenting on it. Um, and that's why at the beginning of the Stephanie McNeil episode, I did say, if you don't know what Ari who Ariel is, Caroline Calloway, these people like go to Stephanie's BuzzFeed page. I told you how to Google it. And I said, read the five most recent articles. And I do think sometimes some pre-reading does help. And I apologize to anybody that was mad at me for talking about people they didn't understand. Unfortunately, I just can't explain every single little thing or else like uh, this already takes long enough. So I apologize. Um, but, you know, like like we've been talking about with influencers, it's hard to be everything to everyone. And it's hard when you people like come down on you for stuff when you try to do the best job you can. And like this whole episode is like one big pit of anxiety and I'm going to go scream and do a pillow. It's like, what did I say? Did I say too much? I just feel like I don't know if people needed to know this much. I don't know anything. And I just feel weird about it. And I'm just going to wrap up um, and put the rest on Patreon and keep it around two hours. Because now it's like late in the week and I want to get this episode out. And uh, yeah. So I answered the broad stroke stuff about like general influencer questions on in, on Patreon. I'll go into like there's a lot of questions about, like building my following and like who helped the most answer Tybal answer girls got to eat those people got like the, to those two alone. But honestly, the anybody who's saying they don't notice when they get huge pops is lying because I know I can I know who refers the most people follower wise because it's not an easy thing to do anymore. And it's quite fascinating. Um I'm trying to think of other questions I could rapid fire answer that are of broad interest that a lot of people asked. Oh, like a lot of people asked, like, why am I not with a Dear Media or something, uh, which is the network that um, I think that Lauren Bostick and her husband started. And they have insane talent, like Heather McMahon. Um, 
Jackie Schimmel, That's So Retrograde. I mean, list goes on. They have awesome, awesome talent. And I've talked to them before. Yeah, but they they actually won't support a show that's as long as mine. I think that's the last time I interacted with them is they, yeah, it's honestly for places that are do production in-house, it's a production burden, which trust me, I know. Um, but as I've been pretty straightforward with you guys about like, this is that they're not the first, like a lot of people have been like, this needs to be under, you know, ideally 45 to 60 minutes under 90. Um, I've had so many conversations with several networks over the years. A few of them, I, I just never felt like there was anything that wouldn't compromise like the content or the mission of what I'm trying to do. I'm like anybody who signs with them is so lucky. I have literally nothing against them. Um, but the way networks add value is different. So whereas I don't really need the production and editing and the technology and all the hosting, like that stuff I've already figured out um, that they, them taking it on would be like a high cost just because my, the nature of my show is different than other people. So I totally, totally get that. Uh, but as I've said before, um, you know, I think that there aren't enough women who speak in long form. I, the Joe Rogans, Chris Harbrooks, Pete Holmes, Dak Shepherds, like of the world, just like run the show. And I, I'm like so inspired by people like My Favorite Murder, who just like they're the only women in the top five earning podcasters. Like it's just a very male centric industry. And I think that given I'm a consumer of long form, there's a place for long form. I'm going to continue to argue and advocate for long form. And, um, yeah, that is, it just is what it is. I've told you guys that before. And in making that commitment, I knew I wasn't going to be super marketable to places. So that's why I built my own business model out with Courtney and stuck to what I know I'm good at. Um, I'm not saying that in a way, like I clearly probably could be a lot more successful if I (laughs) did a lot of things or signed on or changed or whatever. But I think in life you um, when you're told repeatedly you're not a fit for something, you can look at it one of two ways. One, you're not a fit and you need to change. Two, you're doing something different. And I was made fun of when I started a doormat business. I was made fun of when I wrote a book about Instagram. I was made fun of when I started a podcast. And you can make fun of me all the live long for going over two hours and 10 minutes while I explain I should be justified to have a long podcast all you want. But I don't know. I, I just always want people to know um that things are popular are popular for a reason and should be followed and listened to and replicated and they're great revenue models for companies to make more and more money uh but sometimes you know whether you're interviewing for a solo job whether you're trying to get accepted to something whatever it may be it's not always that you're unqualified and it's not always that you need to adapt to their standards but sometimes you need to figure out if you need to fundamentally change just to boost yourself you know an economical amount relative to where you already are so you can feel more on par with your peers or if you can like be okay feeling a little bit like an outlier feeling a little bit rejected but hoping that the return is so much bigger than a nominal increase because for me I just always everything I've ever tried to model after somebody else doesn't work I almost try to actively pursue things that are an abyss of the unknown because if when I you know different networks and stuff are trying to make this like other podcasts I already know where, where they are and I know where they end up and I know what the scale is, but like, I don't know what's going to happen with this and I don't know where it could go or take me. And like, that's exactly how I want it. It already is taking me way farther than anything I would have imagined. And um, I don't know, sometimes for me is it's, it's so like lofty and strange, but rather than make myself fit into somebody else's existing 
reality that's as close to mine, I try to blindly lead with potential that I hope is greater than anything my current reality could ideate. So I don't know if that's a weird thing to say, but I encourage people to do the same. I've, I just, at this point, like I'm self-conscious about a million things and can nitpick the execution of this. And I care so much, so much what people think. And I have so many issues on so many levels with even breaching into public territory, being a person like me, that's sensitive. And that is, you know, their own issues with mental health. And I question that often if I'm the right fit for this, but I haven't worked this hard and, and, you know, built a business and tried to craft a persona and tried to build something out of nothing, just being a regular person that prayed people want to listen to my voice. And I, I haven't done all of that just to sit here and say that I don't think it works if I do it my way. I have a ways to go. And I, you know, it's like everything's relative, right? And I'm not trying to like, seem like I have some sort of inflated ego or I don't know, think this is something it's not, but rather I just have full faith in, you know, following my own compass and that what somebody else tells me is true north is motivated by their own business's interest and not with my careers in mind and the more things you can do and keep under control and manage yourself to keep yourself free for better opportunities down the line. Um, I think oftentimes the better off you are. I've learned not to go for shiny things that comes too soon that seem too good, that seem to automate something that actually just takes a grind that you have to be okay with putting in the work for. I made a lot of those mistakes with the mat business, with some earlier stuff. And at this point, I just feel like things are finally coming together in a way that I wanted them to and that I hoped would happen, yet didn't really have a proxy for. And I say all that to make a huge pitch for patience consistency for hard work and for following your gut and your own mission and not letting other people tell you how to be the best version of yourself. I, we, we go to everyone and anyone for answers, but ourselves thinking that there's must be somebody who knows better, who's smarter, who's more capable, who can tell us where to go, who can rid us of the inevitable certainty that life throws our way. But I'll told you before, and I'll tell you again, when you feel so uncertain, when you're so nervous, when you're so scared, when the outcome is so ambiguous that I'd argue it's limitless. That's when you know you're onto something. Keep doing things that make you uncomfortable. Don't let anybody tell you who you should be. And just because it doesn't exist and you don't have an example of what it looks like doesn't mean you can't make it happen. And insert all of the caveats here I need to about being in similar circumstance and privilege and all of that. And like, I, I know I'm so lucky in so many ways, but what I mean is I don't have connections in any industry I've been a part of. I don't, I only had the money that I made with the jobs I worked out of school and then got out of school and then saved so I could take some risk. Um, I burned through that money, had none of it, and then had to slowly rebuild it over the past five years. Um, I've experienced so many different lives in the past decade and change. And while I know so much of my baseline privilege is there, I also know what it's like to be at rock, rock bottom and to be super depressed, to feel like I have absolutely nowhere to go and to actually have that simplicity of getting back to basics and forcing me of pursuing what brings me genuine joy to be the greatest gift I could have ever been given because it made me find this podcast. It propelled me further into a format of influence that has only helped my career by legitimizing me in so many different ways that enabled me to do things like live shows that make people interested in my other book ideas and, you know, laugh at Instagram, laugh at influencers all you want, but everything I've ever gotten in life that's helped me to live out my potential and not just my fixed concept of what was in my reality. It happened because of 
social media and because of being more of myself on stories and because of actively pivoting out of who I thought I had to be and seeing if people would be receptive to who I actually am and never, ever doubt the power of having that reach to so many people every day of being a part of their lives and how your influence could ultimately really matter. So anyway, hang in there. I know times are tough. Trust me, I feel it so much. But on some nights, I feel so lucky that even if I don't get paid to do it, even if it doesn't always look like what I need it to, to even just have you show up and come here and let me keep you company and let me kind of sort out my thoughts <laughs> out loud about the most random of topics and you somehow walk away thinking it was a good use of your time. Like I am the luckiest girl in the world. And thank you for allowing me to do something that against many odds seemed impossible that I think uh, is just getting started. So I love you. You're the best. If ever you feel so inclined to share this on your stories, screenshot it if you're private the only like way to grow it means the world to me i get so excited when you guys share if this episode added any value um rate and review be there in five totally breezy uh podcast facebook group i'm a little behind still working on letting people in our powerpoint parties are every saturday where people deep dive into a niche topic for 10 to 15 minutes so i can flip the script and hear from listeners and i don't do the talking for once and i love getting to know you and uh i think that's it and bonus content's also on patreon.com slash be there in five. It is a paywall, but you get things like full video of me and Danny. You get bonus episodes with me and Kelly. I put my talent show pants ripping video on there. You get access to the PowerPoint parties, the virtual hangouts, all the things. There's like, I think, 80 bonus episodes if you ever was for some reason want to hear more from me. So anyway, guys, OK, this is so cheesy, but I, I literally just said against all odds. And then what am I going to say that and not think of Phil Collins? This wasn't the song in Five of Goes West, but I love some FGW, <laughs> an American tale. <laughs> Anyways, this song's so cheesy, but it's like you coming back to me might be against all odds because these episodes are so long. And also take a good look at me now. There's just an empty space because like, I think I just told you everything I've ever known. And I might have like dumped everything out in this episode. And I feel I feel both. Uh, it's like the feeling of emptiness is either like a good thing like you got it all out there or like a really bad thing you know and i don't know how to feel yet but i sincerely hope this is a good use of your time and please let me know and um you know just enjoy the musical stylings of one phil collins i hope you guys have a wonderful weekend take good care of yourselves i'll see you soon and as always <laughs> let me know your thoughts and i will let you know mine i'll be there in five i swear <laughs> <laughs>